right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. We do not have a weekly recap this week. A multitude of reasons, if you will. Uh, Of course, with the Bryson-Tim Tucker news that came out earlier this week, we do address that a bit. Kevin Van Valkenburg is the guest on today's show. We get into why we chose the topic, which is uh, we're going to cover major championships from 2009 to 2012. Uh, we do a full intro of the all the reasons reasoning behind that and knowing that this uh, Bryson Tucker thing would be at the top of people's minds. Uh, we address that as well. It's a little tough for, for me to weigh in on that because as the person who broke the broke the story, I got to kind of stick to uh, what I what I can report versus like all the things I've heard about it. So. KBV and I have a, a brief discussion on it. Uh, I think there's going to be more to the story as it plays out, and uh, I'm sure we'll be we'll be discussing uh, Bryson and, and many opportunities down the road. So, uh, before we get to the topic, uh, our friends at Callaway do have a quick topic for you as well. That is giveaways. I know how much you guys love free stuff, uh, and in case if in case you somehow missed it, Phil Mickelson is playing in this Tuesday's match with Tom Brady's his teammate. They're facing off against Bryson and Aaron Rodgers, best ball competition in Montana. And Callaway's an official partner of the match, and they're going to be giving you a chance to win a Phil Mickelson signed staff bag to enter for your chance to win. All you got to do, go to callawaygolf.com slash the match. That's callawaygolf.com slash the match. Also, Callaway's not the only one with a giveaway. Travis Matthew is offering match viewers a chance to win a VIP trip to the next match, plus a Travis Matthew shopping spree over on their site. So you can check that out at travismatthew.com slash the match. So again, if you're interested in winning the Phil Mixon sign bag, learning about the clubs he's playing on Tuesday, go to callawaygolf.com slash the match. And if a dream trip is for you or the opportunity for the opportunity to spectate uh, the next match while wearing all sorts of Travis Matthew gear, go to travismatthew.com slash the match. Without any further delay, let's bring in Kevin Van Valkenburg. I will warn you, this is a very, very, very long podcast, but we are golf nerds and had a great time digging back into a weird little annal of history that uh, I, I, I promise you you're going to learn some things. I promise you don't have all this stuff memorized. Some is interesting, some might not be, but it was all interesting to us. So enjoy. Cheers. It's without fail. It's every time I have something scheduled. If you're listening to this podcast by now, I'm I'm safely off on my honeymoon, so we are not doing a recap podcast this week. Every time I'm getting ready to do something, all I say is, "Gosh, I hope Brooks and Bryson don't do something." And sure enough, Bryson has to go and do go and do something this week. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon, where the news just came out that Tim Tucker and Bryson DeChambeau will no longer be working together. And my guest with me today to do to cover a totally different topic is Kevin Van Valkenburg from ESPN KBV. How are you, Sully? I'm back. It's so <laughs> great to be here. Great to have you. Uh, we are going to be uh, doing a deep dive into the majors from 2009 to 2012, which is a weird time period to choose a weird topic we'll we'll get into kind of why we chose that but uh you know i I know the listeners are are gonna at least hope for a little bit of reaction to the news i feel very close to this having been the one that broke the news and hesitant to almost say anything because it uh you know reporting is supposed to be your thing first of all you're my you're my reporting lawyer here you gotta you gotta keep me from saying anything stupid just uh, only uh, say what you know. I'll, I'll as the opinionated uh, person here, I'll go ahead and speculate wildly. But uh, yeah, 
you did a good job. Uh, and, uh, some other people uh, sort of uh, reported their own versions of it, but it seems to me like uh, from uh, what you heard uh, that uh, that this was not exactly a mutual parting, that uh, maybe uh, one of the parties uh, wanted to leave the others. And uh, I, you could say caddy relationships are always kind of um, a little bit uh, tenuous, right? They're not, they're, they're rarely... Like Phil and Bones being together for 20 years is certainly the exception. It's uh, not normal. Not normal at all. And so on one hand, like it's no big deal uh, that a caddy and a player decided to go different ways. It's certainly strange that um, if Tim decided to leave Bryson, that you would leave like a player who was super highly ranked and like played all the time and made lots of money. But personally, like I could totally understand how getting to the course at seven in the morning and being there until 10 o'clock at night uh, where a guy is hitting balls in the pitch darkness and being like, no, no, I can still see the track, man. So I'm good. We're, we, we got another hour. We can keep going by the light of my phone uh, that that would be a little bit annoying. Which as I understand it, that is like maybe reason number 168, why this happened. Uh, but no, it's, it's a very normal thing for, you know, the when you know, the morning of a tournament, for player and caddy to mutually part, you know, it's a, it's a very, very normal thing, at least according to, yeah. to Bryson's camp. So yeah, definitely like looking around for another caddy, like Thursday morning hours before your tea time, that definitely suggests a mutual parting of ways. huh? Sure. Yes. And, and a, a tournament you're defending and that you're the heavy favorite at, uh, yeah, it's, it's totally normal for your caddy to be no longer on the premises. So here's a totally random question. Do you have to have a caddy? Could Bryson just get yes. a push cart? And you okay, do have to have a caddy. We did a player handbook deep dive the last time that we were away for, uh, for a, a weekend. And you learned you do have to have a caddy. You cannot have a push cart. Uh, the caddies have very specific rules they have to follow. You can't wear bright colors. You can't. Uh, you're not allowed in the locker room. Crocs are allowed, though, which is spelled out in the player handbook. And that means there is a reason why that has to be spelled out in there. <laughs> but somebody had to ask if they were allowed to wear Crocs. Exactly. The, the competition committee looked at it and said, OK, fine. So I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to say any more because this is going to come out Sunday night. We're recording this Thursday. A lot more could happen between... Now and then, related to the story, and make this feel very dated. And uh, like I said, I, I think there's going to be more that comes out. It's it's normal that players and caddies split. I agree with that. The for, the way that this happened, I do not agree with. And for it to happen for such a to at such a, a high profile player, high profile bag, high dollar bag, uh, is certainly certainly unique. So we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that Brooks has already seized this opportunity to oh, do yeah. more uh, brief petty trolling, which. You know what? I kind of love still. I, I I didn't I didn't like the the Michelob stuff, but this was the, exactly the kind of needling that. I yes, did. this is on the tasteful side. This is fine. Like uh, encouraging other people to heckle another player on site. Not that I'm not that cool with that. Like pretty harmlessly heck, needling somebody on social media for something like this. I'm way in on that. So that a, a point for Brooks in this one. He lost about five points when he did the uh, the Mick Ultra thing, but. So, all right, why why would you say we are are looking into we've we've each done a little research the structure of this podcast? I dove deep into the uh, the years two thousand and nine and two thousand eleven. You dove deep into twenty ten and twenty twelve, looking at each of the majors. Um, why would you say we are doing a topic based podcast on on this era? I think because uh, we 
we're a little bit part of like new media, right? Like new golf media. I'm not so much me, but more certainly you. And we're on a, a new media podcast. Well, look, think about it. Like podcasts didn't really exist back then. The way that we consume golf now uh, and, and golf Twitter is sort of an active, insane, uh, vibrant, terrible, lovable place. Uh, that just all of that stuff didn't uh, in wasn't around back when this stuff was happening. So you and I were kind of joking about how would certain like Twitter or, or golf podcasts react to stuff that happened back then if uh, if it happened now. And I think that made us kind of laugh a lot to think about, uh, you know, how what the kind of jokes that we would make or the things that we remembered, because certainly we're both golf sickos, but it's easy to forget all of the stuff that happened just 10 years ago. And so I think it'd be a fun trip down memory lane. Some of this stuff, certainly you'll remember if you're listening, but some of it is totally like lost history until someone says like, no, wait, seriously, that guy was T2 after three rounds at the PGA Championship? That doesn't make sense. How about this guy was T3 at the 2011 PGA Championship? Anders Hansen. Do you remember that name? No. But- he was not T3 after round one. He was T3 after round four. He- Anders Hansen finished third place at the 2011 PGA Championship. Well, there's another Hansen, uh, Peter Hansen, who was... <laughs> was in first place at the 2010 Masters. So the 2012 Masters. Excuse me, 2012 Masters. So That's like when he shanked it on number 12. Yes, we'll see you've already stolen one of my best. <laughs> you could remember what happened on 12. But uh yeah, let's let's uh, go through this and uh, and just uh and kick it off because I think uh I want to scene set a little bit in right. that it's not a lot of classics in this era, and I think that's kind of why it's a lot of forgettable uh, majors, honestly. And it it really kind of blows my mind. And a theme, at least in the years that I was diving into, it was when things got close, when it looked like a three, four, five-man leaderboard. Almost every single time, the guy that you would least expect to come out on top came out on top. Like, I'm going to spoil this for you. Y.E. Yang won the 2009 PGA Championship. And it is not the only time we're going to hear the name Y.E. Yang, which is another lesson I learned in this deep dive, is Y.E. Yang was low-key, like, kind of the man in majors for a little time period there in, in this weird time period. But it there's going to be a lot of, at least on my end, probably, uh, probably unfair uh, laughing at people, which is, obviously, these players are incredibly talented, but it also speaks to this era where Tiger kind of vacated things for a little while and left things open, and the people that Tiger was super influential on, the, the influence that Tiger had on the game hadn't come into professional golf yet. There's On the back half of this, Jason Day really emerges. We're going to get Justin Thomas. We're going to get Jordan Spieth. We're going to get Roy McIlroy on the back half of these years. And that is, in my mind, the first crop of people that came up in an era where basically ever since they had decided they wanted to be pro golfers, money was already big in this sport, right? Just there was so much more infrastructure in place to support professional golf careers. There was that much more reason to pursue professional golf for, for good athletes like Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, who are still, uh, Dustin's on the, on the a little older end, but those people hadn't fully emerged on this scene yet. So you're going to get some Scott Verplanks popping up in here. You're going to get, you know, people outside the top 100 in the world winning majors in this time period because it was just kind of there for the taking. And it, you know, it some of the names you go see in there, you have to do a, a double or triple take. It's like, who? Like, what? This guy was involved in the major championship scene. So 
Uh, I, I love going back and looking at old Wikipedia pages for old majors. So this was a really fun task for me. I got way bogged down on 2009, 2009 U S open is mind blowing event that I still can't really, uh, imagine how it happened, but I, I don't know where you want to start with this. I kind of wanted to, to go through and just set the scene a little bit with tiger woods was number one in the world from June, 2005 to October 30, 2010. That was a record 281 straight weeks. After that, so again, we're in 2010. Here's what happens with the official World Golf Rankings number one spot. Lee Westwood takes it in October of 2010, holds it for 17 weeks. Martin Keimer takes it February 11, holds it for eight weeks. Westwood takes it back in April, holds it for five weeks. Luke Donald takes it May 29, 2011, holds it for 40 weeks. Rory takes it March 2012, two weeks. Donald takes it back for four weeks. Rory takes it for two. Donald takes it back for one. Rory takes it back for three. Donald takes it back for 11 weeks. And finally, Rory keeps it for 32 weeks into March 2013, where Tiger takes it and keeps it for a year. So leaving the Tiger era of a record 281 straight weeks, we have this just trade-off game with all European players that took it over for basically this entire era. Well, I think I'm fascinated by, I, I want to know how much, manipulation there was going on for Martin Keimer to get to be the number one player in the world before, like it was before he won a major, right? Or was when, maybe it was when he won. Once he had won the major, he got to number one in the world shortly after that or somewhere around there. But because it's not like Keimer was winning a lot on the PGA tour, if I'm correct. Right. I'd have to, I'd have to look at how he, how he kind of traced, got it there. So he was, he was third in the world uh, in 2010, but uh, so he won, he was 13th in the world when he won actually the PGA championship that brought him up to fifth. Um, and so he had, yeah, in that year, he had won Abu Dhabi. Uh, he had T3 at, at a WGC that got him up to seventh, but yeah, he, in two, he was actually 2009. He really made a move from, in, you know, the top from around 23rd in the world up to near the top 10. So I don't remember Keimer being a force before he won, but I was also 22 years old around this time. So that's again, kind of like a, I, I, I probably go in and appreciate any any players that have not held their success late into the 20 teens and into the 2020s. I've I've probably unfairly lost respect for, and that's part of this task. Was like going in and be like, no, Steve Stricker was a killer in this time. Like, Stricker was tough, man. It's 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 kind of sad to think of Scott Strick never winning the major because like he was in a bunch of them. Like he was really yeah. pretty good for a long stretch. Was an amazing ball striker. And I, I, for the years that I was responsible for 09 and 11, I went in and just looked at the whole PGA Tour season as a whole, just to try to get a good picture of that on top of the major championship year. And man, it was like, you kind of wanted to pick out some names to kind of make fun of for winning tournaments. And Stricker's name is in there a lot. Like he was, he was picking off a lot of tournaments in this time period. But winners in 2009, uh, uh, that year, Y.E. Yang won the Honda Classic. I feel like we're going to hear that name as this podcast goes along, but don't remember that. I do not remember Yang. No, I don't remember that either. That's awesome. Though. Like I, everyone thinks of Y Yang as like this one hit wonder, like this giant killer. Like no, Y Yang was a baller. And Yang has some baller ass quotes from the 2009 PGA, which we're going to get to as well. Oh, but sweet. what sticks out to me about 09 that is all right. So obviously we know what happens at the end of 09 with Tiger and with his his world. But it's easy to forget, and you know, he doesn't win a major in 2009, but just how good he was post breaking his leg. Right? I think a lot of people, you know, it, it's been many years now, and it's easy to look back and, and blend, you know, the knee surgery, the first knee, the big knee surgery he has as being kind of what derailed him. But when he came back, he was a complete menace in 2009. One at Bay Hill, T6 at Augusta, fourth at Quail Hollow, eighth at the Players, wins Memorial. T6 
T6US Open, wins AT&T. He missed the cut at the British Open, but wins the Buick, wins the WGC Bridgestone, second at the PGA, second at the Barclays, T11 at Deutsche Bank, wins BMW, second at the Tour Championship in a year that like is a very forgettable year in Tiger's career because he didn't win a major. <laughs> You know, it's always funny when, like, whenever Kyle will do like the rankings of like Tiger's best years, and like 2007 is like sneaky, maybe you know, as good as 2000, but like 2009 is like super underrated in terms of like his actual career totals and stuff. Just because he went a major didn't mean that he wasn't a, the flat, like, best stick in the world. Mm -hmm. And he, he should have won at least one of the majors, but uh, other winners in this 2009 year Brian Gay, Brian Gay again. Uh, Sean O'Hare, Jerry Kelly. won two tournaments in 2009. <laughs> Rory Sabatini, Bo Van Pelt, Nathan Green won the Canadian Open that year. John Rollins, Heath Slocum won a playoff event. Uh, Troy Madison won his second PGA Tour event in this year. And it's just worth, I, I don't know where to fit this in, but fashion at this time is an abomination. There are just so many white belts. There are so many blue shoes matching blue shirts. And listen, I can confirm this had a major, major, major influence on me. And I wore, blue, this is your blue period. I wore the white belt way past the time that it was acceptable to do because everyone on tour, like it was, it was just like a standard. Everyone wore a white belt with absolutely everything. The cat even wore them a few times on Sundays, which was just appalling. But man, that that white belt really came out in full force right around this time period. I want you to know that every now and then, just for fun, I've gone to like in like a golf galaxy or something and tried on a white belt. It is not a look for a guy with like a 36, 38 waist. It is just not a good look. What, somebody said the rule. If your waist or your age is above, you know, a certain number, then you should not ever wear a white belt. And it, it clearly applies to me. Now, now Shane <laughs> Lowry sometimes will pull off a white belt. And then like if there's any golfer with a physique that I, is probably similar to mine, it's it's either like Shane Lowry or Jason Gore. So like, I, I feel like if, you know, if they can wear the white belt sometimes, I, no, it just doesn't work. So the OWGR at the opening of 2009, Tigers one, Sergio two, Phil three, Padraig Harrington fourth, VJ fifth, Robert Carlson sixth. Robert Carlson. Camilo Vajegas seventh, Henrik Stenson eight, Ernie Els nine, Lee Westwood 10. That's, that's a pretty, that's a, Robert Carlson's the only name on there that really surprised me. Camilo a little bit, but uh, that's a pretty stout top 10 to open this year. So the 2009 Masters was held that year at Augusta National. Um, and again, uh, you go into 09 and you start looking around at like who's going to win these things. And Angel Cabrera wins the 2009 Masters, not to spoil that. But he, and he won the 2007 U.S. Open. But Kenny Perry in 2009 is, again, something like the heartbreak I don't think I fully had the grasp for uh, going into that Sunday. So it, Phil and Tiger were paired together on that Sunday for the first time at Augusta. Phil goes out in 30. That's right. Kenny Perry had a two shot lead with two holes to play. One par wins him. The masters hits a hits it over the 17th green hits. Honestly, a horrific chip that almost runs off the front. It rolls barely off the front of the green. He goes on uh, bogeys. That one hits it way left of the pin on 18 out of the bunker doesn't get it up and down, pretty much leaves a putt to win the Masters short. Chad Campbell had a putt on the 18th, on the 72nd hole to win the Masters in 2009. Right. He also missed it. Barely and missed it? it? I can't remember. Do you remember it was close-ish, but okay. yeah, and he was not in the final groups, but it, it turned out that putt was to win the Masters. This is pre-Kenny Perry when he, 
he, he wasn't wearing his glasses then, right? Clearly, he needed to be wearing his glasses. I don't know. That was, I don't, he would correct. He was not wearing the transition lenses at this point. But. <laughs> I mean, clearly, the sun was setting and Kenny Perry needed some transitions. <laughs> Which, like, gosh, if he, I watched most of that broadcast back preparing for that. It, it is like a coronation. You know, I mean, it's, it, they're following that story and he, he had a good, a really good back nine going, but Angel Cabrera birdies 13, 15, and 16 to get into the playoff from the last group. He was plus two on the day to that point. Cabrera's got a putt on it, a par putt on 18, you know, to get in the playoff. And Nance, you know, sets Faldo up, says, what, what, do, what do you think about this one, Nick? And I quote, I don't know, Jim. Don't that was Faldo's analysis before Cabrera. One of my Conley. favorite. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was going to bring it up too because that is literally one of the, my favorite things that ever ever has happened in a Masters broadcast where, where Nance just absolutely served it up on a platter for Valdo to be like, oh, it breaks a little bit left here. We'll make sure you can't leave it. You can't leave it short. And he's just like, no idea, Jim. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> don't know, Jim. <laughs> but I would appreciate like an honest Valdo. Like, you know, what if Valdo all the time was like, well, Jim, I just, I, I thought I was going to get up and roll some putts this morning and I just wasn't, I wasn't up for it. I slept in. <laughs> so It was a four footer. On a course that Faldo has won at three times, okay, like he could—he didn't even have to tell us about the break. He could have been like biggest putt of his life right here. All you got to do in this situation is close your eyes, think of one you've made. Like, give me something because I don't know, I don't Jim. Know. <laughs> <laughs> do you? Okay, so my one of my main memories that sticks out about that broadcast is there is a shot briefly of Kenny Perry's kids like just sobbing, yeah. like behind. Oh. One of the most heartbreaking things ever. Like, you know, this this really Kenny Perry was, I don't remember how old at this point, but like it was clear that like this was his last gasp, last chance to win a major. Like his kids are there, they're pulling for him, whatever. And like at, that line now in between, like I don't know that they would show Kenny Perry's kids sobbing now. Like that the, I think back of ten years ago, there was a little bit different sort of standards in in broadcasting of like, well, it's all part of the story. But now I think there would be a, a big backlash if you like shoved a camera right in, in Kenny Perry's kid's face and just they watched him sob. And, was, and Chad Campbell's real, wife too in the play. Yeah. Once Campbell doesn't make it, it's it's just like a replays in slow motion of his wife's reaction and stuff. No. And yeah. <laughs> Perry was 48. So you're right. This was this was the last gasp chance to, you know, to 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 win one of these things. They go into so what they go into the playoff. And I don't. I did not remember this either. Onhill drives it way right and directly behind a tree, and has to. I mean, he's in a playoff with two other guys. He knows he's got to make a par no matter what, and that might not even be good enough. He tries to go right around the tree and hit this punch hook and hits a tree square, like just nails a tree. They don't. They can't find the ball. It pops out it's in the middle of the fairway. Like it could have gone anywhere. And he gets up and hits it to six feet and saves par and makes it to the second playoff hole. One thing I definitely remember about that is like the the sort of growl that Angel let out after it hit the tree. It was like a, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God bless Angel. We'll never see him again at the Masters. He was probably going to be in jail uh, for his life. But you And know. that's what is just like a, now doing this podcast now for what with the current status of Angel Cabrera, I'm still waiting, you know, the chairman of Augusta National to just, you know, address this situation similar to how they addressed the Tiger Woods situation. Oh, we'll get to that in my turn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, it's a very, it's a sad, sad story for Angel. People that don't know, I mean, gosh, what's he, he's, was arrested by Interpol on domestic, well, I don't even remember exactly what it was. It's a, sounds like a very bad thing he's got going. Several, like, allegations of domestic violence, like, 
I, I'm not quite a little like why Interpol had to get involved. Like, uh, I think he was like, trying to travel internationally, like running from the. He was running. Yeah, I feel like this probably should have been a bigger story in golf. Plus, Masters champion and U.S. Open champion. And U.S. Open champion. Yeah, beat Tiger Woods in the U.S. Open. Like it's nuts. But Cabrera is what I would consider honestly to be the Kepka. He's the the Kepka or Louis Oosthuizen of this era. Like he appears a lot. He was very much like a. All right, the, the regular tournaments mean nothing to me, but I'm going to show up for these majors and do some weird shit. And he fucked around and won a couple of them. So, was this still when he was smoking uh, on the course? I feel oh, like I'm sure. Yeah, they were yeah. trying not to show it as little as as possible. I know he was smoking all throughout 2007. It was, and they were just kind of like because a bunch of my friends were like, "Oh, I love this guy, just just ripping heaters right and left." And there was some like. He tried to quit smoking for a stretch, and then he just realized how much it screwed up his game. So he was just like, "Look, I'll smoke anytime when the camera's not around. Just you, you help me out here." So, how did he win the playoff? How did he win? I don't remember. I remember he got up and down for that par, but I don't remember. So Perry goes way left uh, with his approach shot. He hits a drive that doesn't really take the slope. It's an awkward shot. Goes left of the approach, chips way past. Uh, doesn't make the par putt, and Cabrera hits a shot that was barely gets on the left side of the green. It could have kicked down and gone left, and he's able to easily two putt and and win to to Perry's bogey. So Perry, yeah, bogey's seventeen and eighteen uh, in regulation. Par's eighteen in the playoff, and then bogey's the third playoff hole to bogey three of his last four holes to to not win the Masters is. It's tough. It's not a fun rewatch. It's not. And that's, it's like you go and look at the view count on some of those ones that are just a little bit more heartbreaking. There's not a lot of people that have gone back and watched that one. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know about you. I have special empathy for people that have played 72 holes in a major and nobody beat them in that major, yet they never won a major. Like Perry yeah. and Campbell both go in that, in that bucket and they're, they're yeah. not alone. It's just different to me. If you lose in a playoff in a major versus just getting a solo second, like nobody beat you over 72 holes. And Mm -hmm. a a T2 just feels especially harsh for, you know, playing 72 holes at Augusta and nobody beating you. If I'm bored one day, I may go and just look and see how many like guys who are like essentially like one par away from winning a major. Like it it would be a fun list of like what if to put together of like, uh, well, if you had made this one putt, on your last hole i mean like think about just like more modern era like justin rose and and you know justin rose probably never win the masters but like he had a bunch of putts in that sergio sort of throw down where he if he makes one and sergio doesn't he wins it wins the masters and then you know justin rose is elevated to a certainly a different level in some ways like he's got two majors oh marco mira talked about that on the pod too of his ball covering by 10 inches on 15 on his approach shot and 15 on, on Sunday, like 10 inches shorter, like something you're really honestly not in control of. You can't pretend you're in control of, you know, where that ball lands within 10 inches, but he wouldn't have been on the pod that his whole life would have been different if that ball didn't cover that, those 10 <laughs> inches. And it, it's mind numbing, man. It's numbing to just go back and look at all these. And it, I feel like I, what I'm about to, when we flip over to the 2009 us open, I'm about to just start roasting people for making bogeys, which is not fair at a us open, but You'd be surprised in the year that, you know, Y.E. Yang beats Tiger and then Tom Watson almost wins the Open Championship, which is coming up next. The one I had the most fun and I had the most notes on is the 2009 U.S. Open at Bethpage. And it is just it's amazing. One, maybe it helps because U.S. Open has awesome films on, on all the open on, you know, showing all four rounds and everything. But holy shit, what a week this was coming in. It's the Phil story. Amy was diagnosed with breast cancer the month before this. Um, and it's you know, it, Beth Page had hosted the U.S. Open in 2002. 
And Phil had three runner-ups in the U.S. Open in New York alone to that point. <laughs> Which, why can't I think of the third one? He had Wingfoot, he had Beth Page. Shinnecock. Shinnecock in 04. That's right. Yeah, so Retief Goosen made like yep. 10 one-putts on the final day. Oh. And there was a rock in the bunker. Uh, and Phil, like, he he hit his shot. And, like, there's a, a Golf Digest, or maybe it was Golf Week, did a big story about it years ago, like how... The rocket, like no one could see the rock, but he clipped the like the the chip went way long, and he had an impossible putt like above the hole and made double, and that's how essentially he was he was either tied or was leading by one at that moment with Retief. So, like, yeah, that, I think he, I think he made a double too when they lost the seventh green. That the, when they yes. couldn't stop a ball on that green. That's a that's a while when we could revisit at some point, but. So it, it, it Phil's support is just astronomical, which has always kind of confused me a little bit. He's not from yeah, New, New York, York, and Phil has, doesn't seem like a natural pairing, but he has no New York ties. Uh, but they just absolutely love him there. Weather was a factor at the 2009 U.S. Open. Play lasted for three hours on Thursday, just a complete total downpour. More than half the field didn't even tee off. The cat, number one player in the world, opens with a 74. Ricky Barnes got out and ran 67 to open up and a name emerges on day one ranked 882nd in the world, a major champion, former number one player in the world. Do you know who I'm talking about? He doesn't look great. His clothes kind of fit funny. He doesn't really look like a pro golfer anymore. God, I don't. David Duvall, a qualifier. A qualifier for the 2009 U.S. Open opens with a 67, three under I remember, par. I remember thinking that that Duval wasn't even really playing competitive golf at this point. Like he was just playing in the British Open because he had to have the lifetime exemption, or whatever. And then he like qualified and he was like just hitting. It, it was like a great U.S. Open for him because he was just oh, just make a shit ton of pars, like um, hit everything straight. Like it was that was wild. He played in no majors in 2007. He only played in the Open Championship in 2008 and. His last top 10 in a major was T10 at in 2001, the same year he won the British Open. He never finished uh, inside the top 10 in a major ever again. Do you, so, are you, I'm, I'm older obviously than you, but do you remember Duvall's prime? Like, were you paying enough attention to it to really? Yeah, I, yeah, but no, I was still pretty young. And I mean, it, 2001, let's see, I was 15 years old. So when he kind of stopped playing, it was kind of, I remember it because I was a, a very impressionable golfer in that age, but uh, I, I think I more remember it just how like wondering why it vanished and how it vanished more than anything. But he was such a sick iron player. I mean, he was he flushed everything. And just to watch him, you know, and he was kind of not afraid of Tiger, which everyone else was afraid of him. Didn't mean he always was like, you know, beat him, but he was just he was an awesome player to watch. He was I don't know what it exactly was that you know, it's not like he drove it like super far or it wasn't like he had a great short game, but man, you just he could step up and just flush irons. Mike Weir opened with a 64 that day, opening round lead, made a double bogey and shot 64 in a US Open. Um, wow. the course is just sopping wet. I mean, they had to squeegee the greens, they had a really wet, you know, June leading up to the US Open, and the weather was just did not cooperate for the entire weekend. First round leaderboard, Mike Weir, Peter Hansen, David Duvall, Ricky Barnes, Todd Hamilton, and Rocco Mediate. It's open. <laughs> I have some memory of Phil. Like this, it represented a little bit of a change in Phil fashion era. Like he was, 
he was a little slimmer, like wearing like the green like tight shirts as opposed to like the big baggy ass shirts. Is that is that accurate? I've watched a lot of Phil highlights over the last. I don't remember exactly what his wardrobe looked like around this time, but they follow like the 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 film follows his week a lot. And I'm just kind of like, ah, I don't remember Phil being part of this story. Turns out he was also a part of this story in 2009. But the draw was really tough for the early late crowd because the second round didn't start until 5 p.m. on Friday. They finished the second round on Saturday afternoon. Duvall goes psycho scorecard in round two, but is sticking around at T4. Shot even par 70, but was just all over the place. Lucas Glover enters the conversation with a 64, and I'm sure you you know this. Azuma Yano is in a tie for fourth uh, after two rounds. <laughs> oh, yeah, Azuma Yano. Yeah. yeah. Legend, legend, I, you, I couldn't even tell you where Azuma Yano, what country is from. He is from Je Japan, and that is the first time I've ever heard this name. Ricky Barnes leads after 36 holes with the United States Open scoring record, eight under par. That's right. Painter's cap, Ricky Barnes. Like oh, God. The Dutch boy can't hat or whatever. And it just, it starts to look look like a like answer to a question of like, hey, you like scratch-ish golfer, if you had a, a seven-shot lead at the U.S. Open and we put through you out there in the most pressure, do you think you can hold it? Because that's what it starts to look like he's swinging it like on when, by the time we get to the final round. He's holding it off. Oh, he looks horrible. His balance looks horrible. And we'll get there, but... But I hadn't, thought about this. I, I hadn't thought about this in years, Sully, but my dad disliked Ricky Barnes immensely. And I was always, I, I, I didn't understand why. And I was like, what, what is the deal? Like, what is there to hate about Ricky Barnes? And he was like, well, there was this golfer who was from Montana and like all of us were sort of rooting for him to like make the tour. And like Ricky Barnes kept getting all these special exemptions and this guy and our guy didn't. And I just came to resent him. And I just felt like, you know, our, our guy was much better. It was like, you know, never produced a pro golfer ever in the history of the state of Montana. And so that was my dad's irrational uh, sort of methodology for loathing Richie, Ricky Barnes. So I remember him kind of rooting against Ricky Barnes as he was falling apart, which I found to be really cruel. <laughs> well, he had a great Monday when this thing ends up finishing because he does right, fall apart in spectacular fashion. Saturday, it dumps rain again, halts play before 7 p.m. So the third round uh, resumes on Sunday at noon. Third round picking up Sunday at noon, uh, completed in the late afternoon. And then at the end of round three, it's Barnes still at eight under. Lucas Glover still at seven under. They are uh, David Duvall and Ross Fisher are T3 at three under heading into this final day. So they barely start round four on Sunday. Ricky Barnes gets out and makes an eagle, gets to 11 under par. Can you off the top of your head? Can you tell me? Can you guess what the winning score is? Uh, I, I feel like it's. Five under, maybe something like that. Is that four, right? Four under par wins. Four under par. Okay, that yeah, just a, an absolute. Doesn't I mean Ricky makes like a an eight or something early, something ridiculous where he's just like scuffling around in the in the fescue. Uh, Even worse for the uh, the round four. I'm losing track of the days. So we're still in round three when he gets it to eleven under. But Ricky shoots a seventy seven uh, in the final round without making worse than bogey. Shoots a seventy six without making worse than bogey. Wow. <laughs> that is wild. That is a slow drip of death right there. So when Ricky makes eagle on the front nine uh, of this round three, Glover makes a birdie at the same time, gets it to eight under, and Johnny Miller calls Ricky Barnes' performance a clinic. It's just like the, the highlight tape of like everything going right. 
Ricky finishes round three at eight under. Glover at seven under. Phil is sitting there at T5 at two under. They go out, start round four late Sunday night. Barnes makes another bogey, hooks a three wood on the second hole, and they suspend play when he's in the heather. So he's got to wait overnight. <laughs> no. He, he wakes up and he starts Monday and hits an insane shot out of the heather onto the green and like save par out of it. And then he proceeds to hit it into the heather on almost literally every hole after that. And on several <laughs> cases, doesn't get it out of the heather on the first shot. I mean, there's a highlight tape of just every time they cut to him, he's hitting hybrid off the tee. Boom. Straight into the heather. Hits another, hits a driver off the tee, into the right heather. It is just, it, it's like, it's like the before part of an infomercial of like, what, you know, what could possibly go wrong? It looks like he's trying to hit it into these, into the heather on, on repeat. Okay. I have a quick question. If you hit it in the heather and play is suspended, do you get to pick the ball up and mark it and then take it? Like you, cause like I, I I'm very curious as about like, then you have to recreate the lie, like in the heather the next morning. <laughs> you are supposed to recreate the lie. Yes. Uh, so I don't, I don't, maybe it could have worked to his advantage some. I really don't know. <laughs> I don't think they mowed the heather overnight with as much rate as they had gotten. So. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. At one point, you know, the Glover or sorry, Rick Barnes is, uh, up by six shots on, in this final round, five bogeys in, uh, in a 12 hole stretch uh, over again. I'm confused on which day it is, but he's up by six shots at one point. <laughs> I think that's round three. Duvall opens round four, plugs a ball into the lip on the second hole after bogeying the first hole. This is sorry. On the third hole, he plugs one in the lip and makes triple bogey. So he started the day at three under. Now he's one over leaving the third green. And he's going to re-enter the conversation. This this would prove very significant, this three-shot triple bogey on the, th- on the third hole. Duvall hits one of the worst shots I've ever seen from a pro on seven. It's a mud ball. And again, this is like when it first starts to dawn on me, one of the most doubt, biggest downpours that I've ever seen in a golf tournament. Of course, they never played lift-cleated plays in this tournament. <laughs> <laughs> Just- like. Just suck it up and deal with it. It is rain suits the entire time, and there's no lift clean in place. He hits this duck hook that like is semi duck hook, but like the mud ball makes it look just again comically goes far left. Makes a bogey, turns around, birdies eight. Crowd is going absolutely ape shit, and Duvall again looks like, and I don't mean to be mean on this, like he his clothes don't really fit, and like he he has put on a lot of weight. He doesn't even look really like a pro golfer anymore with the way his his stance looks. It looks just supremely awkward and it's really confusing as to how it happens but he hits iron shot after iron shot you talk about how good he was with his irons he just keeps flagging it keeps flagging it did he have any like sponsorship clothing deals like it was, was nike logos on his it was nike clothes? still he was still okay. nike wow nike still had him on barrel i love it <laughs> he turns around and birdies eight to get back to even and the leaders just like keep faltering so glover goes out in three over and Ricky goes out in five over in the final group of the 2009 U.S. Open. Phil rolls in a bomb. He Phil birdies nine to get to minus one, only four back. Then roll, goes up, rolls a bomb in on 11, is only two back. Barnes bogeys 12 to go all the way back to one under par, starting the day at eight under. He's one under through 12 without anything worse than a bogey. Phil has 229 to the 13th, stiffs it, and makes eagle. He's tied for the lead. Phil's tied for the lead at four under. So I'm pausing here for a sec. Did in your research, did you find the deadspin piece about um Mike Lupica in regulation to this moment? I do not think I did not. What happened? So uh I I can't remember the author. Uh 
but they were there at the US Open and wrote a piece about how Mike Lubica, now this is definitely in the era when sports writers were not supposed to be fans, were not supposed to sort of like express, you know, favoritism, whatever. Mike Lubica, New York sort of sports writer of, of many, many years of, of great uh, importance, uh, also according to Mike Lubica, he is like screaming in the crowd, like, whipping them into a frenzy like you know pumping up like running up and feel going like come on phil (laughs) (laughs) favorite anecdotes of this entire era of golf of like mike lubica like completely feeling so invested in phil mickelson that he that after he makes eagle he's just going freaking bonkers (laughs) That sounds a little bit like me at the 2016 Ryder Cup with you when Reed made that putt yes, on, uh, on the eighth green. I just started shaking your shoulders. And it was so loud in there that it didn't matter. And it was the first time I did it all week. But I was just like, ah! <laughs> Exactly. Yes. That oh, was my Lubica. Mike Lubica lived so that you could live. Uh, <laughs> you, could, you could fly one day. Um. So Phil is tied for the lead. Uh, the New York crowd is going absolutely apeshit. He turns around three putts the 15th, misses a putt inside four feet, doesn't even touch the hole. And gosh, does Phil miss a lot of putts in this era of, of this length. It just seems like every time it's he gets close, he just misses one of these putts. Duvall steps up, birdies the 14th hole. Duvall steps up, birdies the 15th hole. Duvall steps up, birdie 16 to get back to three under. He wow. was plus one after he tripled the third hole, birdied four, birdied eight, birdied 14, 15, and 16. He gets within two of the lead. Glover goes out and bogeys 15, his fourth bogey of the day. Then Duvall flips over and bogeys uh, uh, 17, unfortunately. So he got to minus three, falls back to minus two. Glover makes a stiff birdie on 16, moves to four under. You know, Phil gets up uh, over to the 17th hole now, has like a seven-footer for par, doesn't even come close. Duvall lipped out his four-footer for par on 17. Glover's got a two-shot lead and just coasted in. But again, if we get to this point where we look at all these names tied for the lead, all these possibilities, Phil making a run, Ross Fisher makes an eagle on 13 to gets the three under. You're like, Lucas Glover can't like win the U.S. Open, can he? And it turns out, in fact, Lucas Glover can win the 2009 U.S. Open. He was ranked, what was he ranked in the world? He was 71st in the world after Angel Cabrera was 69th in the world to win the first major of the year. I definitely remember one other thing I remember is just a lot of like, this was the, definitely the era of like the let's go Mickelson, you know, or Derek Jeter. And you hear like the fans all clapping like that. That cheer was huge. And that they were giving that to Phil like throughout the, uh, the whole time. But gosh, I just feel like people don't talk about that Duval run, man. I mean, this guy was oh, yeah. out of, out of golf for the out most of body part. experience like that was nuts almost winning the u.s open i mean shit it's it's the 09 again it's so hard to keep track of, like what's going this is all happening on monday night and the crowds are enormous like this thing i don't know how many this how this many people were able to get monday off that on that short notice or how they even did tickets or any of that but nobody missed the monday finish of that event but a quick break here to check in with our friends at DraftKings. mcgregor versus poye three is all set ufc 264 and DraftKings sportsbook the official sports betting partner of ufc has a knockout offer for this weekend's fight they're offering 264 to 1 odds on a knockout 
in the first round during Saturday's main event. If the, and if the rubber match ends in a first-round knockout, you walk away with cash. All you got to do is pick the main fighter that you think will win by first-round knockout, and DraftKings Sportsbook will give you 264-1 to 1 odds on that fighter. Again, bet $1 on McGregor or Poirier to win. In a first-round knockout, you win $264. Don't worry if MMA is not for you. DraftKings Sportsbook offers great odds and promotions on basketball, hockey, so much more. It is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code NLU when you sign up to turn $1 into $264 when you bet on the on a main fighter to win by a first-round knockout. Place your bet. Watch the fists fly this weekend. That's code NLU to turn $1 into $264. Only the DraftKings Sportsbook must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania. Only new customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Let's get back to KVV. 2009 Open Championship, I've, I started out with saying, like, you know what? That probably needs its own podcast at some point, but I don't know if it does. I think we all really, really vividly remember what happened, and it's not – there wasn't a ton I uncovered that was like, oh, this is totally forgotten and lost to history – uh, Miguel Angel Jimenez opened with the 64. Ben Curtis, Kenichi Kabuya, and Tom Watson shoot 65 on day one. Uh, Sink, Matthew Goggin, John Sennon, Steve Stricker, and Camilo all had 66. Steve Marino got involved. It was him and Watson on top uh, after two days at five under. Calc was right there at four under, age 49. Kind of overshadowed there with what Watson did. Yeah. Um, and then Sink is sitting right there at four under. Watson solo lead uh, on top of, at four under heading into Sunday. Ross Fisher, Matthew Goggin at three under. Sink at minus one. I don't know whatever happened to Matthew Goggin, by the way. But final round Sunday. Somebody opens up a three-shot lead. Can you guess who that is? No idea. Ross Fisher. Ross, a, I was just going to guess three, Ross Fisher. <laughs> a three-shot lead at one point, which I did not remember that happening. Chris Wood, out of nowhere, Catches a flyer, catches a flyer on the 18th hole, made bogey, ends up being a shot out of the playoff. Wow. Like Chris Wood was barely had turned professional, I think, at that point. And, you know, he'd later be on like the 2016 European Ryder Cup team. Yeah. But I remember nothing about Chris Wood in this time period. Shot a 67 with a bogey on the last hole, which ended up keeping him one shot out of the playoff. Um, just, one thing I would be curious about reading re the rewatch of this is like, how did Watson like sort of think his way around it? Was it, was he hitting driver when other guys were hitting irons? Was it, was length ever an issue? Like, was it just, he knew how to sort of play lengthy stuff and they didn't. I mean, I would be curious because I remember watching it at the end of it, certainly, but I don't, I don't know that I could tell you like, Oh, this was like, I remember he putted his ass off for a couple, like a big stretch, but how like he was standing on, the last uh, tee with a one-shot lead, I have no real like recollection of how it happened. It was firm. It was really firm out there, and he did hit a decent amount of drivers, but like coming down the stretch, he didn't need a lot of drivers even. I mean, the, where those holes kind of dog-legged a little bit, it was you almost, and how much the ball was going to run, you almost couldn't hit driver on some of the holes. So it distance was not a factor. He could easily, he reached the par 5 17th pretty easily, made birdie. You know, take that one shot lead. He actually hit it over the green, over 17 and two. It was just a master class and just like hitting your ball in the right spots. He made a ton of putts the first three days and he really did. And it just, I mean, we know what happens there on 18. I mean, the putter was bulky, honestly, on eight, the whole day on, uh, on Sunday. And on 18, he hits a great hybrid off the tee. 
and just hit the wrong club in. And he hit eight iron, and it should have been nine. It hit the downslope, whatever happened. In re-watching it, it is a harder shot than it looks. Sure. And Stuart Sink honestly hit a tremendous shot in on his 72nd hole. Lands it in the very front. It rolls up, takes a big right turn. I remember him making a 40-footer. It was only like 15 feet. Okay. He had a very, very good shot into 18. And yeah, when Watson hit it long, it, really, it's not even the par putt. The the putty hit from the from the rough from the fringe was just gassed. It was not even close, and yeah. um, his his par putt also didn't really sniff the hole. I remember thinking. I guess I remember talking to Joe Posnanski, who wrote a book about Watson and Nicholas, who sort of said, "If you could go back and do it again, it's not the eight nine iron choice, probably because maybe you just hit a spot that was super firm and it bounded through. It's that you got one of the greatest chippers in the history of like golf." And you're putting it from the fringe there, like maybe if you could if you could do it again, you'd just say like, all right, I'm just gonna hit a great chip and chip it to a foot and tap it in, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. It, it, the the playoff was not really very close. You know, Sink kind of got out and run. Watson has trouble on the 17th, makes double. Sink ends up winning the playoff by six shots. The four hole aggregate, oh, he stuffs yeah. it on 18. And I, I actually talked about this with Stewart on the podcast this week. I I always found it interesting myself included in this like we hated Stuart sink for it right it was more it was yeah. more of what watts like Stu didn't come up and steal it from him like watson fell back watson bogeyed 18 and then shot several over in the playoff it wasn't like it wasn't sinks doing for the most part he played a great 72 hole tournament of course but i don't know i found i always found that, that funny that people blamed him so hard i remember uh, my friend barry through the washington post uh has written a lot of golf for them he was there and he, I texted him and I was like, how's it going? And I remember him talking about, yeah, like Watson's got like tears in his eyes. Like he is fighting back, you know, some stuff like right now. And so like, that was kind of sad to see. I, I, I have a very specific memory of after he hit his drive in the fairway, I was like, holy shit. Like, it's kind of like my dad is almost about to win the British Open. Like this is nuts. The, this just doesn't compute that like, yeah, 50 is one thing, but 59 is like a whole different world, you know? Well, and the, the, the broadcast is talking about, and I'm watching the the European broadcast, Peter Alice on the call, and it, they're so calm and casual about it. Like one of them, one of the broadcasters at one point says like, yeah, this would be the greatest sporting achievement ever. <laughs> and it's like, without the excitement of like, gosh, oh, I, I love European broadcast, but I was kind of like, man, I feel like the American broadcast would really be driving home how insane this story is right now. And he says this, he's like, Hole location is the same hole location when he won here in 1977. It was like 1977, yeah, like 42 years before that. Like what? Well, that's that right. 32, that's one to think about. Like, 32. how would golf Twitter react to Tom Watson like being in the middle of 18 fairway with a shot, you know, into 18th green to win the British Open? Like, I, I don't think anybody could breathe. Like, the amount of tweets that would be flying through your timeline are, would be overwhelming. I remember watching it. We were in Hilton Head and I, I, you know, we, you know, stayed way late and like we were supposed to join the family at the beach that day and we couldn't leave. And it was, it was just like heart. It was so freaking heartbreaking. It just like took the air out of yourself for the, almost the whole rest of the trip. It was like, how can we, how can we have fun on this trip? Like that was almost one of the great sports stories of all time. And it just didn't, it barely didn't happen. It's, uh, Gosh, yeah, that would that would be up there for Twitter moments. I would love to see, or moments I'd love to see, you know, Twitter unfold. I mean, Tiger at 08. I mean, it just made it. It would have been, you know, a crazy fun Tiger thing. But like we saw with 2019 with Tiger, like you, it almost is too. You can't even like grasp it happening. Whereas this would have been 
I don't know, man. It was it was one of the wildest sports stories ever. I mean, just oh God. All right, we're I'm taking way too much time on my what PGA on that. What was the PGA this year? PGA uh 2009, Hazel Tiger opens with a clinical 67. Five birdies, no bogeys, one of his best ball striking rounds in a major ever. Uh, round two, he shoots 70, opens up a four-shot lead through 36 holes. His largest margin after two rounds at a major since the 05 British at St. Andrews, where he led by five. Round three, he shoots a 71. Uh, the lead is cut from four to two. Padraig uh, and Y.E. Yang on his heels. Shout out to Lucas Glover sitting T4. I wanted to, you know, we kind of made fun of him winning the U.S. Open. He What a ball-freaking era for, like, this was, this was like when you couldn't, just be like a great driver of the golf ball, right? Like you had to strike your irons. And that was where that's honestly, when we talk about like distance and stuff, I think this is what we talk about. Like guys, the fact that like David Duvall and Lucas Glover could be in contention in, in this era was so like, and why Yang too, it's not like why Yang bopped it off the tee, but if you were a great iron player, you were in contention at majors. Yep. And you, you were able to compete in this era and that I, I struggle to think like that a lot of these names would be able to do that in the current era. Right. It just seems like it gets thin from like four crazy names. to like maybe one a year gets involved in some way. So it's Tiger and Stevie final round paired with Y.E. Yang. They don't say one word to Yang or his caddy for four holes. They get to the six T and an official comes up and says to Yang that they need to speed up. And Yang says, not me, him. <laughs> <laughs> to the official and they show a bunch of, and there's a bunch of clips of like you know tiger they've pga of america uh pga whatever your youtube channel is great interview with yank's caddy and it's a bunch of like the indecision that tiger had on that day like the wind was swirling and he kept backing off shots and throwing grass up in the air way more than you'd think uh but yeah why yang playing with tiger fucking woods birdie's the third tiger bogey's the fourth and they're tied so he's raised the two-shot deficit Tiger birdies 11 to take a one-shot lead, but gives it right back. And then on 14, Y.E. Yang, I don't remember this shot. He chips in for eagle on the drivable par four, the 14th, and takes a one-shot lead. Tiger birdied it, but he has a one-shot lead. Um, and they get to uh, 15. They're, uh, Tiger's, it's a par five. Tiger's on a downslope, and he chunks a five-wood off the downslope. And the caddy tells the story. He says, Y.E. looked over at, at him, the caddy, and says, Tiger nervous. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Why Yang ain't care? He was a weightlifter, man. He, he Tiger wasn't gonna intimidate him. It was it was just awesome. Like uh, yeah, the boldness of Ye. And so they get, you know, they both bogey 17. Yang still has a one-shot lead, and Yang drives it in the left first cut on this par four, the 18th at Hazel team. Tiger hits a really good drive, but still has five iron in this hole is long. Uh it's like a 197 in from the right side of the fairway. And Yang has got to go back and forth, back and forth. The wind is howling. And he um, ultimately chooses. They're having this conversation. There are five head covers in Y.E. Yang's bag, first of all. Okay. I had to double, do a double take to make sure I had the count right. But there's five of them. They're deciding between three and four hybrid. Yang says to the caddy, let's go with three. And he just fucking flags it to a back left pin over a tree with wind coming off the left. The difficulty of this shot is hard to fully grasp. Like, it wouldn't make sense with a one-shot lead to go at that pin. Faraday blows the call while it's in the air, says it's overhooked, and it lands like a foot away from the hole, rolls out to eight feet. And crowds go, it's like stunned but going nuts. And then Tiger hits like a really aggressive shot at the back left of the pin, but it settles like just a, you know, six, like maybe three inches into deep rough, but pretty close to the hole. 
And I, at this point, I remember watching this. I was in a hotel room in East Lansing. It's weird how I remember the locations of watching all these, all these majors in 09. But at this point, we don't know that Tiger isn't invincible, right? I mean, we think back to the 08 U.S. Open. Like, he was dead so many times. And I just remember, like, he has this chip. Like, it, it's going in. Like, it, yeah, it was like a new- He's never lost one of these when he's been leading before. Like everything, it's, it's going to work out some way. Like, yeah. win this. And I remember reading about this, and I couldn't find this, but I remember reading, maybe it was even on Twitter back then. I, I was on Twitter, but not tweeting at this point. I feel like this is one of my first Twitter majors that I remember. That somebody had said, like a live Vegas odds at one point while they were tied on the back nine, the live odds had them, had Y.E. Yang at 10 to 1 to win it. Wow. The bookmaker was interviewed the next day or afterwards and said, he said, I didn't regret it all. Honestly, that 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 reflected like the likelihood of Yang winning was one in 10 when they were tied on the back nine, which is just like something that's super hard to wrap your head around. But well, how many I mean, like other than the true like sharks, like there's been a lot of like dumb money on Tiger. Yes. Because like people are like, oh, I, I, there's no way I'm going to bet why Yang. I'm going right. to bet Tiger whether I, you know, so. Yeah, I can see like that's why the bookie would set that line. Yeah, they probably still didn't lose a lot of money on him at 10 to 1. But no. and I remember being on Twitter and I thought it was Bill Simmons, and I tried to find this tweet, but I couldn't find it. But it that somebody called this. I vividly remember it was like, we're about two minutes away from Nance giving us a Y-E-S <laughs> call. And then Nance did it. Did it. Somebody had called it. I remember somebody calling it. It's like, oh my God, how did I just I wow. I really wanted it to find that. It was not Simmons, or if he did, he deleted it for some reason. It's not there. But uh somebody predicted the YES call, and Nance for sure did it. But Y E Yang uh, pick up golf till he was 19 years old. He was the first Asian player to win a major. He'd already done his military service uh, at that point. Tiger shot 75 with 33 putts. And this is a point I really want to emphasize because this stuck out here. It stuck out in the U.S. Open one, and it's going to come back to bite in 2011 as well. Don't ever say that Tiger made every putt that mattered. Yep, 100%. He didn't. He's the GOAT, but he missed a lot of other opportunities. Like Nobody converted them better than he did in this time period, but he still missed a lot of opportunities, missed some key putts. And I just, I'm still left wondering. I don't know the answer to this. I'm wondering if you can shine it. Like, Why was Y.E. Yang able to stare down Tiger and Phil – Ernie, VJ, Westwood, Love, none of those guys in this era could stare him down. I don't know. It's, maybe just because he had nothing to really lose. Like, no one, ex- like, those guys were sort of invested in, Tiger had sort of lapped them all, right? Made them look, you know, like they weren't trying very hard or they weren't working hard enough to be great. And then, like, this dude came out of nowhere and was like, yeah, no one, I, I don't really care. Like, if I win or lose this, like, I'm just going to go ahead and. Flush some hybrids. This was kind of really right at the beginning of the hybrid era, too, right? Like this yeah. is it was kind of not cool to have a hybrid. Uh and, tiger nervous. <laughs> tiger nervous. God, I've never heard that. He, he lifted his golf bag up over. Oh, his, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the press uh love it. Military press beat Tiger by three. I mean, it came down to the last hole, but I mean it was just freaking absolutely stunning. Watched all Tiger's interviews afterwards. He was, you know, pretty I mean, he was handled it pretty well. Just like things didn't go my way today. Uh, didn't put, didn't make any putts. And uh, yeah, I'd love to see the strokes gain number because we have 33 putts, but uh, it was, it was not a pretty scene. So, so in a very Shakespearean way, Tiger Woods's life is about to come unraveled. Uh, here. The signs were there and I don't think we'll spend any time uh, on the scandal stuff because we've talked about that sort of at length, but as we transition into 2010, which is, is my, 
sort of era, uh, we come to the Masters, and Tiger has, if you recall, he hasn't been playing golf for quite a long time. Like, he's played in the Australian Masters, which is allegedly where Rachel, you could tell, according to the HBO documentary, went down and flew with him, and that's where the National Enquirer got footage of them that they essentially used to to nail him. So he wanted, allegedly, Rachel to come to that the Australian Masters. So the last time he's played since the scandal sort of unfolds is then, and there's all this talk about, you know, when is Tiger going to return to golf? Like, will, you know, he had said, I'm going to take some time away to kind of mend my family. And he and Elon are trying to work things out for quite a long time or whatever. And word kind of leaks that she wants him to miss the Masters. Like, she wants him to prove that he's serious about, like, mending their family and their stuff. And he is like... Yeah, I'm not missing the fucking Masters. <laughs> I'm playing in the Masters. And I don't then, remember that. That's interesting. This is one sort of thing that I feel like is a little bit lost to history in the scandal stuff, but it was absolutely true, is that it comes out that he has been having like a fling with like the 19-year-old daughter of like some of their neighbors. So like it's a, a, a woman who's lived next to, but since she was like 10, 11, 12 or whatever, and as she gets comes of age, like Tiger has an affair with her, and this is kind of what ends their marriage. The, the, the two things, he's, he's going to go play in the Masters, he doesn't care, and like she finds out that he's been messing around with the kid next door. <laughs> and so that's it. Like it's Their, their marriage is over. But he, that, he, had, he had eventually come clean about like all of the mistresses, right, to yes. her, well, and, yeah, but you know, hadn't mentioned that one. And had not brought this up, and this was sort of like much more, I think, speculation on my part but a little bit more personal of like really like the you know the 19 year old girl next door that we've lived next to forever so anyway we get to the 2010 masters and we start off with the famous billy Payne speech oh my which, god uh which you may not remember uh in full but watching it again is it is what is clear is that billy Payne has sat and agonized over this speech and crafted it as though he feels that this is like the golf world is waiting for him. Like we yes. need, we need Billy Payne's take on the situation. Billy, Mr. Payne, please share with us. This is like William Faulkner is going to sit down and pan this lecture. And so I would like to read it in my best Billy Payne voice here. He says, "With great fortune comes great responsibility, not invisibility. It is not simply the degree of his conduct that is so egregious." It is the fact that he disappointed all of us. And more importantly, our kids and our grandkids. He did not live up to the expectations of the role model we saw for our children. And here's my favorite part. Is there a way forward? I hope yes. I think yes. But certainly his future will never again be measured only by his performance against par, but measured on the sincerity of his efforts to change. I hope he realizes that every kid he passes on the course wants his swing, but will settle for his smile. <laughs> this year, it will not just be for him, but for all of us who believe in second chances. <laughs> and I, I'm just, I am, I'm assuming that before this speech, Billy Payne commissioned an audit of the extramarital affairs of all of the white golfers that came before this scenario. I, that it wasn't until the Tiger Doc that I really like got like really flashes maybe it should have hit me longer of like the the maybe not even subtle racism related to this of like 
wait a second here. Why are why are his extramarital affairs the business of Augusta National? Well, and the moralizing of it is just so like coming from Augusta National is pretty distasteful. And I think that this plays it, history did not look upon this speech kindly. But I want you to know that at the time the Golf Channel broadcast this, it cut to Rich Lerner and he said an unquestionably powerfully delivered, brilliantly written and crafted speech. Whoa. <laughs> so, sorry, Rich, but you did say that. So maybe and, and I, I I probably haven't fully fleshed that thought out as much. Maybe I think it kind of it was was it Brian Gumble that was on the uh the Tiger documentary that was just kind of pointed that out and it was very much like like really like you Augusta with all with your racial history like this is this is how you're gonna treat Tiger Woods like this is what you're gonna do you know the guy that won it four times like he hasn't been through enough like we needed to just like publicly admonish him and it definitely I don't know like a big kick to him you know he's coming back to the tournament like he everyone is a kind of you know he, he was he was worried about how the what the reception was gonna be like at that and it was kind of like really positive like people were he was they were happy to see him back. And yet then like on the Wednesday of the Masters, like Tiger came on Tuesday, I think, and did his presser and was like, yeah, I, I've obviously screwed up. I've got a lot so that I need to change, whatever. You'd think that that would have been enough of a kind of mea culpa, but no, the, the chairman had to sort of punch down uh, on Tiger's way through the door and make sure that he knew his place. Cut shot to Arnie's doing the monkey meme over in the corner there, I think. <laughs> All right, so at the beginning of this Masters, uh, Tom Watson, not dead after, uh, you know, he shoots a 67 in the first round. I mean, a lot of names here, as, as you've uh, mentioned here, that uh, you wouldn't expect, like Y.E. Yang, back in the top 10. He is. K.J. Choi, a Masters uh, a baller for a couple years. Uh, Fred Couples, uh, balling out again, also uh, was shot off the lead in the first round. Ricky Barnes. Not dead after the U.S. Open either. He's a shot off the lead. And Anthony Kim. Anthony Kim. An unbelievable, uh, I believe, first round 68 to start off. So, like, pretty pretty good showing. Pretty good. Uh, Tiger, what is, I would ask you, Sully, what is the one thing special about Tiger in this Masters that he has never done in any other Masters? Broken 70 in an opening round. That's right. Shot 68 in the first round. The only time in every single Masters the Tigers have played that he broke 70 in the opening round. Also, as you mentioned, Steve Marino makes another appearance. Mm. Uh, Steve Marino of the famous other person in the Ernie Els uh, story <laughs> that was told on the pod years ago. Uh, this is this ends up being the best finish of Steve's uh, career in, major, in a major. If anyone out there is listening to this, and if you've never read the Eli Saslow story in the Washington Post about Steve Marino playing East Potomac Golf Course, I would encourage you to Google it and do it. It's it's based on the premise of what would a tour pro shoot at my shitty local dog track? And Eli, good friend of mine, talked Marino into doing it. And I won't ruin it for what it sort of reveals, but it's it's not quite what you think. Like a tour pro doesn't go out and shoot 57 at your local dog track from with, even with 300 yard par fours. So there are some an interesting reveals and all that. Hmm. Uh, this, of course, was the year um, that Phil hit it off the pine straw between the two trees on 13. Uh, and I want you to take another moment and think about what golf Twitter would do uh, if that happened. Just an absolute uh, feeding frenzy of, of memes and content and fun. Uh, I feel a little bit sad. I don't, I don't know when we could sort of really trace back to what golf Twitter, its real true birth was. I kind of feel like it's like 14, 15. So we're still like a year out from that. 
Um, but Phil then in, in later years in the infamous uh, leather jacket interview with Ferdy said that he could not lay up in that moment uh, with the pitching wedge because the pine needles might get on the face of the club. And so it was mathematically beneficial to him to hit six iron instead. And he did admit that he pulled the shot just slightly. But of course, doesn't make the putt. Uh, not a big deal. I, I actually, this is a this is a rumor that I heard that I, I cannot say for sure is true, but I, I heard this from somewhere, and I, I didn't go back, get to go back and watch the whole tournament to see it. There's a rumor that on one of the days, and I think it's maybe like Thursday, that Jim Nance refused to say Tiger's name. That he pro, he kind of wanted to sort of like see if like that would be like Tiger's punishment to the whole thing of like Nance would acknowledge him. So he would like Tiger would walk out and be like, and there he is, the great one. About really, <laughs> and so like the whole day, like he just sort of like used these various like little euphemisms for Tiger. Uh, I would so if, I would love to go back and sort of see if that is actually true or if that is just something that someone totally bullshitted me because it oh, kind of sounds a little bit like a Nance story. So this is also just in Tiger stuff. He plays like okay. He's he's sort of in it, but not um really. Like he he is actually in third place after the third round, but he just. He never really kind of gets it going. Lee Westwood uh, is leading. You know, the, everyone thinks like finally this is going to be it's it's Lee Westwood and Phil Mickelson. They're they're one and two going into the last round. But Tiger's like he's hanging in there. He's at, he's eight under. He's kind of scraping it around, not putting it great. This is one of the few times when he was like tinkering with a different putter setup. There's a lot of talk, and this will come up in the next thing about Nike was one of the few sponsors that was like a hundred percent we're willing to stick with you. We're not going to sort of abandon you in the midst of all this scandal stuff. And there's always been sort of a, a feeling within the golf world that Nike wanted him to play uh, one of their putters because it, Scotty Cameron was the one thing that he sort of refused to abandon. So that'll come back. He doesn't go with it yet, but he's, he plays a different kind of Scotty Cameron that we never sort of see him play again. This is also the year of the famous gif uh, that, that you and Porter talk about all the time that you watch just to feel alive where Tiger flicks it and walks as he's not. That's 2011. We're going to get to that. Yes. Yeah. This is one of my highlights. Okay. Well then I (laughs) I, I apologize to the thing. I, I I messed up the ears so you can, you can shame me appropriately. Uh, so Phil makes a sort of a, uh, he just kind of like after the, after he hits the shot on to, uh, to 13 with, um, through the trees, like it, it kind of gives them the right momentum. Westwood sort of slowly kind of bleeds this, his way out of this. Is this the year that Phil made uh, Eagle 13, Eagle 14, and almost Eagle 15 on Saturday? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. It almost had the the true American of the three <laughs> Eagles. Uh, and, uh, and so essentially Phil kind of just outlasts um, everyone. This is also the, the Sunday that Anthony Kim finishes in, in T, you know, all alone in third as he shoots uh, 65 on the last day. It's kind of the the brightest moment of AK's career. We never um, really see him shine quite like this again. He touched the sun. He did touch the sun. He definitely flew a little bit too high. Uh, and this is the year that um, that Nance says when when Mickelson wins, a one for the family, uh, which a lot of people sort of thought was a shot at Tiger Woods, who had sort of you know ruined his own family life. But Phil was here, and there was a lot of like backlash about. You know, how do you know what Phil Mickelson's family is like? And how, how dare so there was I remember a lot of angst amongst Tiger fans that Nance was not just sort of uh, giving a shout out to Phil and Amy and Phil's mom. Uh, is a 
both Amy and, and Phil's mom were were battling breast cancer at the time, but this was a real dig at Tiger. So um, whether that's true or not, no idea. Right after this Masters happens, uh, maybe like um, two or three weeks, Hank Haney uh, announces that he and Tiger are splitting ways. And uh, this, this leads to one of my all-time favorite anecdotes in golf where uh, Mark Steinberg says to Hank, uh, as revealed in the, the Big Miss, like, you can't do this to him. You're his best friend. And Hank is like, what? Like, what? that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, it's a dude who won't even give me a popsicle. How am I his best friend? So. One of the things I remember from that book, too, is at the 2010, uh, you know, they're, they're driving in the car and, and there's like Tiger is still reading articles about him and like scrolling down and reading the comment section under the articles. And which I've never understood Tiger to be like fragile in that way in terms of fan support. And that that little nugget just always stuck with me. I was like, oh, man. So he did see my comments under those articles. So <laughs> we still love you, Tiger. <laughs> we'll support you through everything. Fuck Billy Payne. <laughs> All right. So the the U.S. Open uh, here. This is uh, this is at Pebble Beach. Well, so I remember this this being like. All right. Again, this was a long time for Tiger to go to not win a major, right? So it's been two years now, and I remember going into the like, Pebble Beach being like. All right, if he doesn't win at Pebble, something's wrong here. We were here 10 years ago, and he won by 15. That means he should probably win by about 10. And if it doesn't, something's wrong here, which is very amateur uh, golf armchair quarterback opinion. This, I think, was the first time that I began to understand the that if just because you like dominated on a course a certain point in your life, like that you're going to come back and do like the, similar things again. Like everything is so different in golf. It's like Rory Akiwa this year, like. Nothing that happened with Rory uh, in in 2012 had any relation to what was happening in 2021. But we couldn't help but think like, well, I mean, maybe this will be what gets Rory back. Uh, fashion check in here. This is the the year that Phil started wearing pinstripe pants. Do you mm. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, these are now these are kind of like sepia tone colored. They're not like white. They're kind of like. Uh, that sort of old sepia tone look of like the Yankees when you see them in like old yellowed photos. That like the, the the filters they put on like Narcos for whenever they're in yes. Mexico. Yeah, that's yes. pretty much it. <laughs> so this why why exactly Phil decided to go with this? Not sure. Um, Davis Love was wearing like honestly a costume like a look like a Halloween costume like a sweater that was just like over argyled to the nth degree. And this is also the year in the U.S. Open. The tiger went full tanimal, which uh, I is truly one of the great memories. I think it's Tron that came up with this, right? The, the calling it the tanimal. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was you guys in general, but it's a phrase that I've always loved: tan pants, tan sweater. It looked crispy. It looked it 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 it, it was working for me. Yeah, it, it was it was gorgeous. So um, I we'll get back to uh, the tanimal again because it makes another appearance. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, it's. It, he he wears it again, and it's it, I what you were led to believe is that Tiger should really go full tanimal again. Like, so Paul Casey is your first round leader. You know, shoots two under. Like Sean McKeel, right there, uh, another sort of interesting name. Uh, Rio Ishikawa, a shot back. Mike Weir, a shot back. These are all like, huh? Like I didn't think that guy was uh, was in it. That's uh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, Graham McDowell leads uh, after your second round, but uh, 
the main storyline is that Dustin Johnson starts to sort of emerge. He fills only he fills in T second. He's you know about in the running for two straight majors, but kind of he starts to fade a little bit. And really, as we get into third round, Dustin shoots a, a blistering sixty six. Tiger actually matches it, and the, the, probably the shot you all remember most from this is Tiger hitting three wood like big big fade around the tree on eighteen, getting onto the green there uh, to sort of close out that round. I think the best fist pump of Tiger's career, uh, you know, like the big, like, you know, not the big, like uppercut fist pump, but like the sort of, you know, umpire-y like strike three. That's, <laughs> that's how I would describe it. <laughs> so we get in the final round and already Johnny Miller is like trying to breathe the choke, the DJ choke into existence. Like DJ is literally roasting Pebble Beach for three straight rounds. And he's on the first tee, and Johnny was like, he really needs to get through the first two at even par, or he's going to start doubting himself, and it's going to start going sideways quickly. Like, How, How's the fit on DJ's pants around this point? Is he wearing like the weird tapered stuff at the heel? Like, yes. He, the next it, year at the U.S. Open, he's wearing these baggy white pants. That It's just a, it's a tough, tough look. It's very tough. And he's got this the little sole patch oh, no. under his chin. Uh, so nothing like... You you realize like what a better look the beard is. Free beard DJ is a little bit scary. It's it's really like you know the most awkward dude at the party like kind of look for for DJ. <laughs> um, but so DJ comes out and he actually uh, drives it like uh, you know he goes just into like the first cut on the first hole and it's like uh, okay like Johnny's already starting to like say you know well he sure seemed a little nervous he kind of pulled out of his drive but makes a par on the first. So it's like, okay, like, you know, the first nerves of the first hole are out of the way, like, you know, smashes a drive on number two. And he's got like, like 155 into the green, like pitching wedge into the green. Okay. And you're thinking like middle of the fairway, there's no way this can go bad. Right. Pushes it just a little bit. Right. It hangs up in the fescue by the bunker. So at this point, like they, you know, Johnny and, and Hicks and, and Faraday, they think it's bad, but they don't think it's like, a disaster. So DJ gets up there and he's kind of walking around or whatever. And it, all credit to DJ. Like if he was going to fuck this up, like he did it in a really fast way. Like he was not about to like <laughs> slow play us. So DJ gets up there, he flips the club over and it's clear. Like he's going to hit a left-handed shot. I don't oh know if my you remember God, that. I forgot about this. So he takes a, a left-handed swing and it probably goes maybe two feet like maybe maybe three feet at the most so and everyone's like oh my god like what was that really necessary like did he... so then dj sets up to hit like a big flop shot <laughs> and he's taking like these big big like mickelson flop shot swings and i'm not kidding he hits it maybe a foot it hosels like it's like when you see like a 20 handicap attempt at like a big flop in like an impossible situation it basically just like nuzzles sideways. And at this point, it's like, what am I watching? Like, this is horrendous. So then he hits a, like a good chip that's maybe like two feet from the hole. And you're like, okay, well, if you can save double here, like it's going to be okay. And he shoves it like it doesn't even, it's like six inches right of the hole. So but it, isn't it around this time? And maybe it's just because I, you know, we've just seen what's happened in 2009. Like it felt pretty normal to watch somebody melt down on a Sunday of a major. You know what I mean? It felt like, I feel like in these days, it, it the last 
several years have been defined more by success of the of the winners than they are like the failure of the people. You know, th there's not like I, I'm probably blanking on something that's a collapse that's happened recently, but like. I don't know. It just seemed like, all right, we got Ricky Barnes doing this. We got, we're about to get Rory doing his thing. We got, you know, so-and-so at, 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 you know, Kenny Perry, you know, we have Tiger just blowing this. Like it just felt like we kept getting punched in the gut on repeat. And that, I just kind of remember this happening. as like, yep, that felt like it was, it was ready to happen. I think so. I think also I want to throw out a take here. I think this is evidence that the U S open had more teeth. Like if you missed in certain spots, you were screwed. Whereas now, like, I think, you know, if you miss, like, you might make double, but you're not going to make an eight. Whereas, Tori had none of that, right? If you missed it right next to a green, you were going to, if you made double, like, you really fell on yourself. And this is like, no, you might make triple from this lie. Yeah, I don't remember 100% who DJ's caddy was. I didn't catch it at this time, but it's kind of about as bad of a caddying job as you can do, like, up there with Jean Vandeveld. Like, he blows three shots in maybe like a minute 30 like it's just completely and and he's then what gets worse is he steps up on the third tee and it kind of tries to takes a line that's like so ridiculous like left. let's like, get it all back at once yeah and tries to like drive the green like 380 yards away and hits it over by like 16 t and it's buried in something like you know eight feet of grass they look for five minutes they have no chance of finding the ball so he has to climb on the cart and drive back to hit another one. so it's like all of a sudden just a complete train wreck of you know and i didn't really um uh, like you think of dj's swing now is like being pretty simple like not a lot of like moving parts or thoughts to it or whatever but like johnny is like going crazy about how dj how many kind of you know this this is this is the era of guys you know turning their left wrist down and like coming hard across the ball and the dj is really the first guy to do this in a way that's like super power oriented right they they cannot stop talking about how far he drives the ball like he's it, there's you know it's just it's all power his game's all power and and that's why he's, he had hit honestly like 75 percent of the greens in that in the, through through for three rounds of that but johnny cannot quite grasp like the the mechanics of DJ's swing and it's just like tearing it apart. Like there's so many things that could go wrong in this swing. And that's why, like, I just don't know if this will ever hold up under pressure. This is definitely, you realize now, like you think the Azinger says pressure a lot, like there every single time someone in a U.S. Open misses any shot, it's like, well, that's gotta be pressure, Johnny. Like that, <laughs> you just can't handle the pressure. You know, it just, Johnny's like, you never know what it's like to stand up there with that pressure. Is this the, do you, like, I don't know if this was in highlights. Is it, DJ, maybe this could have been an AT&T one year. He drove number four, like, with an iron. They moved the tee up one of the days. He drove it and made eagle with an iron. I, I don't remember if that was this year or not, but. I, I don't I, know if I, that, if, if that was this year, that would have been the third round, which I didn't go back and, and. But I remember that, that yeah. being like a significant, whatever he did that of like a, whoa, the power game in golf is like, this is changing. Like things are yeah. getting a little bit. Did this goose hitting a, a two iron like 290 plus yards up a hill yeah. and you know make an eagle with it? It was kind of like, hey, this things might be changing out here a little bit. So Phil drives the that green, the fourth green in the final round with a three wood. Mm. And they talk about how the the green they move the green back even a little bit because yesterday guys were reaching it with long irons. So, move the tee back, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Um, so obviously Graham McDowell is the guy who um 
comes out of this. Graham uh, only made one birdie like the whole day. So it's like a kind of a, a, a long slog. It wasn't. No one went out and got it in this time period. That's the thing. It's like, yeah. it's just, it's so Graham was, uh, so Phil was obviously the, he was the third ranked player in the world um, when he won um, the Masters, but Graham was 37th in the world. But the, the prior year, we had 69, 71, 33, and 110 ranked players in the world. So we're on this run where one guy in the top, you know, 30 has won a major of the last six. Yeah. So uh, the, the low round of the day was actually Matt Kuchar, one of the only guys who shot under par. Uh, Davis Love uh, was had a really good round going, but then uh, doubled 17. It just really like there was, it wasn't even any drama to it or whatever by the end. Like, you know, Graham Haveray was uh, ended Gregory Haveray. That's right. The Gregory Gregory Haveray ended up finishing second. <laughs> It was always like one of my favorite moments in golf. I think I wrote a blog about this for the Baltimore Sun, like way back in the day. Is is when Graham wins, his dad is, comes out onto the green and like sort of like holds him like Payne Stewart style, like with your heads around your your cheeks, and his case says, "You're some kid. You are some kid." And it was just struck me as like the most wonderfully Irish thing to to ever say. And he said, like Graham gives him a Happy Father's Day, Dad, or yeah. something like that too, which. That always gets me. The Happy Father's Day yeah. coming off the seventy-second hole at the U.S. Open. That that always gets me. Yeah, that was that was one of the first times I really kind of like think I was like I gotta call my dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's not. It's it's nuts. I'm just pulled up the page. Like so, DJ started the day at six under, and G Mac wins it at even. Yeah. So one thing I always think about about this is that whenever people talk about like, and this is a little bit the the Tiger thing. Whenever people talk about like what great like closers and stuff Phil and Ernie and Tiger were, if any of them had shot even par on this day, they would have made it in a playoff with McDowell, and they couldn't do it. Like obviously, like the conditions were so tough that like shooting even par, you know, was was not that would be like the equivalent of shooting three under or something. But you know, it's Pebble Beach; it's the place where Tiger, you know, completely roasted when it was as hard as ever, and he just didn't, you know, he had it the day before, and then something was just different. Uh, on the next day one minor thing i always laugh about too is that this is not on camera which i think if it was it would be like a classic phil moment at some point like on the i think it was on the 15th or 16th hole or excuse me hits a, a like an iron shot that goes right at the green and and comes to rest on like a bundle of television cables and phil instead of choosing to hit a drop wow. like tries to clip it off the television cables which i think is just just such a classic phil thing but of course NBC doesn't have footage of it. We oh only hear God. about it afterwards that like uh, Roger tells us, hey, we all feel headed off the television cables in the last shot. We're like, that would be great to see, Rob. <laughs> like, what happened? We had a smoke break? While we were away. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, I remember being heartbroken that the cat didn't win that one, though. Yes. Uh, it was, I mean, that just felt like when he made that shot at eight into 18 on Saturday, yeah, with the, with the yellow Nike three wood and, and gave the umpire fist pump that felt like the cat was back. Like, mm -hmm. I remember like, I think like Tariko was on the call was, for some reason. I feel like it was on ESPN, like the Saturday round or something, or anyway, so, something was like, I have a pretty, very vivid memory of that. And it was just like a moment, right? Like that was like, Oh, tiger's doing tiger things again. All right, well, shit, he didn't win Pebble, but he's won the last two at the old course. If he doesn't win at the old course, now something's really wrong. That was my 21-year-old 20, brain at this point. Yeah, he's two places in a row where he's been completely dominant. Uh, well, it turns out another era of uh, golfer is about to kind of emerge here. 
Because who shoots 63 on day one of the of the British Open? Is it not Louis? No, it's Rory McIlroy. Oh, that's right. Oh, Most St. Andrews with a 63. And on 17, Rory hits a pretty good drive into the fairway, has like 186, and hits it to three feet on 17, the road hole. The ball, I'm not kidding, was so high in the air that it stopped over the bunker and was short of the pin on from 186. So this is like, you're like, okay, like, Here's a, someone who can do things that we have really uh, never seen before, like the, the, or not never seen, but like the first person since Tiger who can hit long irons that are just incredible. And Rory, Rory is the only guy in this time period that made me think like, is this a worthy topic to do? Because we do get Rory emerging in this time, but he's really the only one that's like entering this scene that it feels very, very different. Yes. DJ maybe, but yeah. Uh, Rory misses that putt, by the way. So if he made that three-footer on 17, he would have shot 62, which would have been the lowest round ever in a major until uh, that, uh, what Brandon Grace shoots it at uh, Burkdale. So I'm going to give you the first name of a gentleman. There's there's four guys oh, no. who were tied. Five guys, excuse me. Five guys who were tied for second on after day one. I'm going to give you their name, and I would like you to try to guess their, their last name. Okay. Because this is an interesting <laughs> exercise. I love it. Okay. Uh, Andrew. Uh, uh, not Landry. It wouldn't have been Andrew Landry, but I'll say nope. Landry. Andrew Coltart. Oh, uh, okay. Bradley. Bradley Hughes. Bradley Dredge. Nope. That's not a real person. Who is it really? <laughs> Peter. Peter Hansen. Peter Tilly. <laughs> what? Uh, another Peter. This is Peter Hansen. So we'll okay. just go that one. And then John. Senden. John Daly shoots oh. six under at the 2010 British Open. Sort of a throwback to when he had won it uh, not all that long ago. So uh, kind of a lot of uh, interesting, crazy names on a... a, a a British Open that ultimately ends up being a total runaway is kind of like a crazy um, start to it because like it just guys are completely tearing up the old course in a way that probably makes you think like okay, well wind is sort of a pretty important defense to this place. Well, because because Rory just goes out and wins it by twenty right after shooting. Yeah, definitely. Three. Oh wait, no. The next day, Rory almost goes full Camillo <laughs> and shoots eighty. So. Perhaps uh, I've always theorized that the best way for Roy to win a major now in this era of like where his head is overthinking is if he went out and went like 63, 80, 80, 63 or something like 70, 80, like completely posted up a number where it was like started the day in 25th place. And then all of a sudden, like, it was like, oh, like Rory doesn't have to think about this at all. Like he's just everyone's going to fall back to him with a huge windstorm just came in and all of a sudden Roy was sitting in the clubhouse for three hours and won this is is he 20 at this point or is he 21 he is 20 at this point yeah wow so he's just turned 20 and it's uh, 80 and sorry he would have been he'd have been 21 because he was born 89 may of 89 right. i just looked it up so. so the british press is is going quite bonkers thinking like this is the you know this is his coming out party like he he, he says in some interviews afterwards i've always loved this place which is a lie because later he sort of reveals that he hated St. Andrews and hated Lynx until he got older. He didn't learn to appreciate it until he got older. So basically he just loved it because he kind of roasted it in the first day. Um, 
sometimes on this is so 40 mile an hour winds like a lot of crazy scores the second day um sometimes on highlight films you'll see where miguel hanel jimenez hits it off the wall on the road hole oh yeah green that's this uh, championship he actually still made double on that but the, the, <laughs> the part gets kind of left out um it's a great highlight yeah so uh could you guess Sally, where what rory finishes after going 6380 t11 he finishes third oh that's right so Roy just basically like had one kind of god awful day, uh, kind of like Tiger at Muirfield that one year, and uh, and otherwise like pretty decent, uh, pretty decent Open Championship for him. So if he could just had maybe gotten a better draw, gotten Louis' draw, it would have been sort of uh, interesting to see if he had actually hung around. If like maybe that you know he would because he was one of the few guys who could have given us a game. But Louis basically starts to kind of just emerge like through two rounds he's 12 under par he goes 65 67 and in second place i'll give you another guess an old american lion come back to sort of uh to give one more shot at this who, who would you guess that would be um it's not calc is it it is calc, calc is it really calc shoots 67 uh and the, the next day and is totally in it uh, a couple other interesting names ricky barnes emerges again like mm. It's kind of amazing. Ricky Barnes is five under after two rounds. In it's for T seven with a bunch of dudes like Ratif Goosen, Miguel Angel Jimenez, Tom Lehman would have been another decent answer of an American Lion coming back to roar once more. Uh, Jin Jeong of South Korea in second place after two rounds. Definitely sure, not, sure. not a name I remember. Nor is Alejandro Canizares. Uh, that mm. was a, a new name to me. So. Uh, amateurs uh, making their debut, Victor Dubuisson, who will uh, later sort of emerge in the golf world. So and then just disappear without explanation. Another, like, when we go looking for Anthony Kim, we should also go looking for Victor Dubuisson. <laughs> they might be playing in the same poker game somewhere. God, that would be amazing, right? That's, that's like a short story. Stumble into, like, a, a dingy L.A., like, basement, and there's, <laughs> there's Victor Dubuisson and Anthony Kim and, I don't know, like, maybe Y.E. Yang, because he's just an older man. <laughs> Probably Phil is there too, you know. <laughs> Anthony nervous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Louis then again, he's still kind of putting his foot on the gas. Uh shoots 69 in the third round. Um, this is kind of a, a little bit like I don't feel like there's a lot really um that happens that's all that interesting the rest of the way. Uh, because Louis never really kind of is it's not even really competitive. Paul Casey Paul Casey it. makes a mess, right? Three at one point, like he, uh, it's it's he's hanging in there. He's trying, he's fighting, he's trying to make it some sort of, uh, you know, contest. He, he the Louis bogeys eight, uh, and so it's he. Casey's at eleven under, uh, Louis at, at fourteen under, but then Louis eagles nine, and then Casey triples uh, twelve. He hits it right in the gorse, completely. Like you know, it's a non-contest. Like we only what the bummer part of it is is like. We only get St. Andrews every five years. And so for this to be like a like a snooze fest, yeah, kind of a bummer. You're like, oh man, I gotta wait another five years just to come back to St. Andrews. Like that stinks. Well, and I just I again was much more of an amateur golf fan at this time, but I was like, Louis Oost, I've literally never heard of this guy before this tournament, and he's gonna win it by like a dozen, <laughs> like ends up being like seven or whatever it was. But it was just like we're on this run of like, dude, what is going on in golf? Like, how are how are these names? Where are these people coming from that are winning these tournaments? Which probably wasn't fair. Like you know, like it, it, 
it's just, but you know, to, especially because of the American, I probably followed American golf closer there than, uh, than I, than I do now necessarily. So it was like, there is no Americans emerging at this time. <laughs> what would you have guessed Louis odds would have been coming into the, uh, that week? 150 to one, 200 to one. Wow. I, I'm betting that, uh, you know, Laddie Brooks did not take a lot of bets on Louis. I would guess not coming into that. Uh, other notable things, t- Tom Watson sort of uh, tips his cap and kisses the Swilligan Bridge on his way out and sort of basically says, like, this is it for me. Uh, so Narrator, it would not be it for him. It would not be it. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I thought was super funny is, uh, you know, everyone, particularly like the British press, loves to invoke Nelson Mandela like any time a um, South African golfer is uh, is involved in stuff. And so... There was a line like in the, uh, I think it was the um, the Telegraph. Uh, no one could have failed to be moved by the South Africans' tribute to the father of his nation, Nelson Mandela, who celebrated his 92nd birthday today. And then they quote from Louis, I was thinking about him walking down the 18th fairway, he said, adding that he did not know if Mandela was a fan of Lynx golf. <laughs> and then it says, surely he must be now. <laughs> It's like the space. Anything that happens to any Spaniard's got to be. It's the forty-sixth anniversary of this time that Sevi, you know, fudged his coin marking or something like that. It's always like t- has to be tied to something. Spanish hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's only if it's if it's a South African, it's either going to be Gary Player or Nelson Mandela. If it's a Spaniard, it's you're going to hear about Sevi. That's just how it works. What was funny is I did uh, I did this kind of emceed this thing that um, this week for for one of our partners. Then Darren Clark was involved and he was telling stories of you know the the claret jug and he just said you know it was up until 1969 it was the you win the claret jug it was your responsibility to get your name etched uh on the trophy and i was like oh that's very like very specific like year and i thought back to it, it was like who won a 1968 winner that was gary player that was the year he put his name in bold on the claret jug and then they changed the rule that the, you were no longer in charge of putting your own name on the claret jug Twice as big as any other name on there. Gary, <laughs> Gary's personal engraver guy was like, oh, yeah, why not just blow it up huge here? <laughs> All right. Um, the last major of 2010. We are going long. We're I, I, My 11 is a lot lighter. I, I know we're. Uh, it took a little longer to get through the beginning part of this. For sure. Uh, so it's at Whistling Straits. Do you remember where it was supposed to be uh, before it was, uh, it was moved no. from another place to Whistling Straits? Did not know this. The 2010 PGA Championship was supposed to be at Salihi at, in Seattle, a uh, country club out there, where Vijay Singh had won uh, his yeah. major. The PGA said in 2005 they were moving it because they had had record crowds at the 2004 PGA at Whistling, and they were worried about the financial support the Pacific Northwest could provide, particularly coming off the Vancouver Olympics. So, like, Seattle area, the Pacific Northwest got a major snatched away from them by an Olympics that wasn't even in their country. They're basically, the PGA was basically like, yeah, we can make a lot more money. Going yeah. <laughs> so we're going to take it there. And there's all these, like, you can go back and read, like, all these editorials in the Seattle Times about, like, the PGA deserves to, you know, reward Seattle with another major. They should be back here anytime soon. If the PGA has any balls, and, like, no chance it's ever going back to Salt Heat, which is, like, 6900 yards or whatever like not a not a place that's like and also like they did they went to Sahali for the KPMG women's PGA there you uh, go 2015 and Brooke uh, uh Brooke Henderson won that one but the PGA of America loves the Midwest man like look at the Ryder Cup sites i mean we did we covered you could cover uh Valhalla 
Whistling Straits, Medina, and Hazeltine all in one road trip. We did that. We're going to have some content that finally is going to come out on it. And like they went to, yeah, they went 04 PGA there. They went 2010 PGA. They would go back in 2015. And of course, the Ryder Cup next year is at Whistling. They fell in love with Whistling. Yeah. I mean, like it did produce some like, yeah. cool tournament. Like we we'll get some interesting uh, things that come to forefront here in a sec. But I, one thing that I think that we have not fully considered uh, about the Ryder Cup is that this both rounds at the first two rounds of the PGA were delayed by weather. Do you know what weather delayed them? Uh, was it fog? Fog, yes. Mm. Three-hour fog delays in the old days. So, like, it does make me wonder, like, as the Ryder Cup going there, if we're going to have, like, some thick, soupy fog that is going to roll in just – and that the, I'm sure the Euros will claim that, you know, the Americans have done this somehow. But We were there uh, in 19 on the, a year out at the, at the year out kind of opening media day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Weather was ass. It was so bad. I mean, like, they got so lucky at Hazeltine. I mean, it was the most – like, the three – most bluebird days you could possibly imagine for the fall. They've gotten lucky in past Midwest Ryder Cups, but like it can be 45 and rainy at Whistling Straits in October, or I guess it's gonna be September now. But it 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 can get questionable up there. Yeah, it's uh, it'll it'll be an interesting one to see. So coming into this tournament, uh, our our man who's sort of the ever present hero of the of all the narrative, Tiger Woods, not doing particularly well. He had just uh, finished up the Bridgestone, where he had finished up 18 over par. One of the worst performances of Tiger's career. So, like, the game was not exactly in a great place uh, at this moment. Uh, do you know who holds the course record at Whistling Straits, Sully? Is it Steve Elkington? It is not. Okay. It was set in this tournament. Uh, it is Leon Wenshong of China. <laughs> what? Leon Wenshong shot 64 in this uh in this pga to set the course record at whistling i've never heard that name i've never heard that name one time leong uh, played in 10 majors in his career he missed eight cuts <laughs> he finished 64th at the open championship in 2008 and at this pga championship he finished eighth so what you know, yes <laughs> so I don't uh, feel bad for not knowing that name then. I've pawed into the, the career of Leon Wenchong, but there it was right there. So in this uh, PJ Championship, a lot going on. Like a lot of, uh, like Nick Watney is your yeah. sort of uh, leader through three rounds. Uh, led by three shots. Everyone was thinking like, whoa, is Nick Watney about to announce himself as the um, the next sort of great American player? He was a force in this time period. He yeah. put up some years. Another ball striker, right? Yeah. Like another like great iron player that probably, you know, I mean, certainly Nick Watney is still bounced around. Like if you don't drive at 340, like you're not going to have these kind of chances anymore. Fortunately, Nick Watney shot 81 in the uh, final round. Again, following a theme. He was the DJ of this year. It was like the final round leader. Just, hey, it ain't going to happen. Whoever you are, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. As you probably remember, uh, Bubba and uh, Martin Keimer end up in a playoff. This is also the year that Dustin Johnson uh, touched the bunker uh, and and the whole meltdown over that. Uh, but do you know who had a putt on 18 that could have gotten him into that playoff? I do. A young Roderick McElroy. Yes. Rory, like, kind of really announcing himself in the last two majors as, like, a real force. You would not think that whistling would be, like, a course that, you know, he would be able to sort of tear up. You know, you miss it. Uh, a little bit here and there's going to be in t- huge feet of fescue but 
Uh, Rory plays a great final round and has, uh, and honestly hits a really good putt yep. on 18. That just uh, fell low. I remember this, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, after DJ, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel like we need to. Um, Is this Rory? Rory's got the mop going right in this yes. year. Like it's a big, it's coming out the sides of the hat. It's a big, it's a, it's a, it's a look he's got going. I believe one of the more like famous like pictures of Rory that is occasionally on sort of Twitter, like the how it started, how it's going thing is like of Rory taking off his hat on 18 from this and his hair is like everywhere. It's like bigger than any of the Beatles in the like the height of the moppiest uh, sort of era. So Elk actually had a chance to get into this playoff as well. He bogeys 17 and 18. Uh, and Zach Johnson, not like I will say, it's a decent course if you are if Zach Johnson and Rory McIlroy are and finish a shot out of a playoff. Uh, that's a kind of a nice uh, variety in terms of like how your course is allowing other people to compete. Want to give a shout out to Camilo Vajegas. Uh He finishes T eighth in this. This is his last top ten in a major. Kind of uh, he's about to drop off of the face of the earth a little bit here, but uh, has a you know he he was a, another like pretty kind of a force in this. So. The playoff is pretty exciting. Uh, well, before, before we get to the playoff, what the one thing that I've always been thankful for when it came to the DJ thing, thank God he didn't make the par, what he thought was the par putt that yeah. would have, in theory, won the PGA for him. Yes. If he busts out into that celebration and then has somebody come up and tell him you just got a two-shot penalty and you're not in the playoff, that would have been even more haunting than, you know, he he's, you know, as it was, he was going to be in a three-man playoff. Let's put his chances of winning it at maybe slightly better than one-third. Yeah. Uh, if he would have won and had it taken away from him, that would have been like one of the low points like in golf history that I can think of. I think that's true, 100% accurate. That is a great point that I have not fully considered. But yeah, the the full like, what if, uh, what if his girlfriend at the time runs onto the green? Like, oh. what, you know, it could be... It could be pretty crazy. Did you? I mean, where did you net out on? Was it a bunker? I mean, well, the I think the the most bullshit thing about it is like there's people standing in the fucking bunker, right? <laughs> so how can you say that this is? I mean, look, everywhere that week in the locker rooms, or whatever, there were signs supposedly posted that said all uh, sand is treated as bunker, like it's not waste area. Don't assume that, you know, treat it as a bunker, which is, I think they've changed the rule of that, right? Like, it's not the case anymore. And that bunker doesn't even exist anymore. They basically right. like filled it in. So that's like, there's no even, you can't even put a memorial plaque up there for DJ. It's uh, sort of a, the here lies DJ where he, he lost yet another major. It's um, so but, absurd, though. Like, the picture, like, it just looks like a dirt patch on a hill. It doesn't look like sand. There's no lip to it. There's no edge to it at all. Like some of the bunkers out there have edges to them. Maybe they've just refined them more now. But like you just look at that and you're just like, no, I'm on a. Uh, I also think you, like you, you, it is then like there's a stupid philosophical argument to make, right? It's like if a bunker is like the transition, if there's no lip between it, then where does the bunker stop and where does the grass begin? Like if if DJ's ball had been partially in the sand but partially on grass, is that a bunker? Like if it's sandy grass, is that a bunker? Like no one can sort of actually tell you. Like if, if there's no lip in a bunker, then I don't. I think it should be treated like a waste area. Like I think that's completely ridiculous. Like to sort of say like, oh, especially if they're like if you can't control the fact that there's fans freaking standing like three feet from you inside the bunker. Like the window that he has to hit it through is kind of nuts anyway. The, the, because all the fans are like leaning into the shot. It's, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Oh gosh. That would that have been a Twitter moment. That that might have been number one Twitter moment of like, what might the have. hell are they doing to him? 
so the playoff is actually pretty exciting. Like Bubba makes a birdie on the first hole, and then Kramer, uh, Martin Keimer, excuse me, uh, comes back and makes a birdie. And uh, on 18, they both hit kind of like skanky drives, but uh, Martin Keimer has to chip out essentially like just like chip 30 yards down the fairway. Like he's got no shot from what he hit it into. Bubba takes like a full rip at the green, which probably not the wisest uh, decisions considering that uh, Keimer just had to chip out. Uh, pushes it just a little bit left and it goes into the hazard. Uh, so like then Bubba hits like a freaking, you know, crap shot like out of the stuff there and goes into the bunker and he almost chips in for bogey uh but Keimer ends up he, he makes double and Keimer wins it with a bogey so mm. uh like not a very like significant like great ending to everything but um a pretty exciting playoff for a moment like to, a, like a body blow exchange of birdies is kind of a neat sort of thing yeah gosh it's weird that Bubba's that close to three majors now oh yeah you know and it, it's yeah, it's definitely remembered more for DJ than it is Keimer winning it. Like people have to, you have to think about you know, it's same with like twenty the next one the the Masters is uh, you know you think about Rory not winning it more than you do Schwartzel winning it. But yeah. Um, so on that note, flipping over to twenty eleven, uh, winners on the tour this year include Mark Wilson, Jonathan Bird, Da Points, Johnson Wagner, Michael Bradley's fourth career win. He wins back to back at Puerto Rico. Oh, Bradley. <laughs> Harrison Frazier, Freddie Jakobsen, Sean O'Hare, Scott Stallings, Steve Stricker, Bryce Mulder, and Ben Crane wins his fourth career tour event in 2011. This is prime golf boys SCN in this time period. Mayhan is going Mayhan. You know, Luke Donald wins the money list with $6.6 million. Nick Watney's third on there with 5.2. KJ Choi is fourth, $4.4 million in 2011. We go to the Masters. Rory and Alvaro Quiros jump out to the first round lead with 65s. Uh, KJ Choi and Y.E. Yang. He doesn't go away and he will not go away in 2011. Uh, Rory, a smooth 69 round two, two shot lead at 10, uh, 10 under over Jason Day, KJ and Tiger at seven under. Saturday, another smooth 70 from Rory. He's at 12 under, four shot lead over Angel, KJ Choi, Jason Day and Charles Schwartzel. Uh, Charles shot 68 to come from outside the top 10 to get into the tie for second going into the final round. On Sunday, that fateful Sunday, eight different players hold the lead at some point in this final round, including a five-way tie for the lead at one point on the back nine. Rory shoots a 37 on the front, is shaky the entire time, uh, flips over to the back and makes just the infamous triple bogey. Duck hooks one, hits a tree, hits it between the cabin. I, at this point, I think it's worth noting uh, before the Rory bashing gets too hard on this one. He would have had to shoot 69 on that day to win outright, which is just something that I don't really... He would have needed a back nine 32. Four shots seems like a big lead going into that final day. And scores were low that day, and it was possible, but he wasn't even like freaking close. I mean, he shoots 80. It's not even... In the round, it's hard to shoot in the Masters. Like it's, it, but despite all the par sixty nine stuff, like not a lot of guys. You go back to this research and like, not a lot of guys shoot like you know, break seventy on like a day when they really have to. Like you know, it happens for sure. Yeah. Winners, but it's not often. It's not like I had ton of guys who do it. So and he flips over and he shoots thirty seven on the front. He would have needed thirty two on the back to get that winning number, and thirty three would have put him in a playoff. But. Yeah. I just got to say, Rory's whole aesthetic on this day is just awful. I mean, black trim on the sleeves of his shirt, black and yellow stripes in the middle. He's got black pants that don't fit him, a black hat. His shirt is coming untucked. 
His pants are way too long. He just looks sloppy. Like, and it, it it's noted. I actually texted him today. I was trying to get like an insight into when his body transformation started because he shows up at congressional just looking different. Like he, yeah. he really, it had to be sometime in that time period of like my body needs to change. Uh, we know it does change eventually by really by 2012, but it seems like after this major is the one where he's like, all right, it's time to, Time to start taking things a little bit more serious. Angel Cabrera, like I said, he's pretty much Kepka at this point, only showing up at the majors. But a little f- a forgotten thing about 2011, the cat, the Tiger, cat. seven back to start the day. Again, doing really absolutely nothing. I mean, he's fallen, you know, he's no longer number one in the world. Starts at seven back. Birdies two and three, and actually bogeys four. Turns around, birdies six and seven. And then hits an insane hook into eight, gets all the way back there to the back pin. The ball rolls forever. Crowd going absolutely ape shit. Drains the eagle and lets out one of the more memorable, like just punch fist pumps. Just like, just lights the place up. And he's uh, the questions, you know, were really out there about him at that point. He goes out and shoots 31 on the front, tied for the lead. I, I go back and watch that eagle pretty somewhat regularly. It, it's it was like a really really freaking cool moment. I remember where I was watching that. He's one back of Rory through eight holes after starting seven back, but he flips over three putts number twelve again. Never say the cat made every putt that mattered. Uh, it was a short short putt on twelve. Drives it into a very ideal spot on seven on thirteen, but hits it over the green. Doesn't make birdie there. Um, and then, so flipping over, this is around the time when Rory starts doing his thing on 10. Faldo calls it adrenaline, by the way. Why Why Rory went left? Uh, it's because of adrenaline. Um, it's But it's his third shot on 10 that really causes issues for me. He's got a, he's got a fairway wood, but pulls it way left. I mean, he could have hit that on the green and made five pretty decently easily, but hits it way left. His chip hits a tree and ends up making seven. It's nuts that he was so far back after snapping it in the cabin. Yes. That even after punching it down, he had fairway wood in the 10. Yeah. And the ball rolled for a while after he punched it out there, too. Yeah. But uh, it's so surreal, man. There's, like, one ha- handheld camera that's, like, shaking, like, trying to get – it's probably zoomed in really far. And, like, when you have that much zoom on a camera, it's hard to keep it steady. Trying to get an image of him between the cabins punching out. And, like, JP trying to get a number for him. Like, it, it's memorable. And it, it just it, – it's, it's really tough to watch. But uh, so around the same time, Cat misses a makeable birdie on 14. And then hits just a monster drive, 315 down the middle of the fairway, and hits the five iron of his life into 18 or into 15. Just does the most casual and subtle little twirl as he starts walking, lands right in front of the pin, rolls five feet past it. In between like him strutting and like the the cut to him, he's passed off the five iron. He's got that horrible Nike putter that he's walking up to the green with. And Put the sunglasses on, right? In the he puts his sunglasses on. He was like then, fighting pollen that year. There was like all this. Oh, he needs to wear the sunglasses for pollen, which is like to see him wearing sunglasses on the golf course is sort of like it doesn't seem right. Like it's like being the Mona Lisa with a mustache or something. Like just something's wrong about it. And then he's got a five foot eagle putt to take the solo lead, the 2011 Masters, and he misses it. And it goes pretty much as far by, and he makes the birdie comebacker, but. So he's now, and again, it's kind of misleading. It's always misleading at Augusta. If you've played, if you're through the 15th hole, you've had more birdie opportunities than the guys behind you have, and all that. He's not so, truly leading. No, it's and he knows this because if you watch it, he's pissed off. Like yeah. he knows that he needed more. Like he needed eagle. He needed make that birdie on 14 if he wanted to have a real chance. At this time, it looks like 12 is probably going to be a really good number to get in at. Um, Tiger on hell, KJ, Adam Scott, and Charles Schwartz are all tied for the lead at 10 under at this point. 
Again, of those five names, Tiger, Angel, KJ, Adam Scott, and Charles Schwartzel in 2011, who's the least likely to win in that situation? Got to be Char- Charles Schwartzel, who at this point, everyone is still calling him Charles because yeah. they don't, they can't actually figure out that like his name is Charles. <laughs> Which I was surprised uh, CBS was all over Schwartzel from the beginning of the day. I mean, he was, he was a bigger story than I, I kind of remembered him coming out of nowhere, but he chipped in for Eagle on three, which is, a, a, and then he really stalls out in the middle of that round, makes nothing but pars in between the, I think he makes one bogey and all pars until he gets to 15, famously birdies 15, 16, 17, and 18 to steal it. Jason Day and, and Adam Scott finished two shots back of him. It really looked like it was going to be an Aussie coronation there for a little while. And then, yeah, Tiger's the only American in the top five. Bo Van Pelt and Ryan Palmer are the only other Americans in the top 10 at the 2011 Masters. You could have said Bo Van Pelt. Like, I mean, I know I remember Bo Van Pelt, but you, the, the, the idea that like he finished in the top 10 of the Masters in like Tiger's prime is wild. Just a hor- Just a big-time indictment of American golf at this point, Ooh. but... U.S. Open, we go to Congressional. This was not, there was not much in this. And I, I'm kind of curious to get your opinion as to why that is. Because Rory goes out and wins this thing by eight. Yet, I never hear people refer to it as one of the great golf performances of all time. You won the U.S. Open by eight, shooting 16 under. And I think it, a big reason is like there's tons of rain. Balls are spinning back at Cong- Congressional. Other than the USGA flags, it doesn't look like they're playing a U.S. Open. I mean... It just looks like PGA Tour Central. He was just on fire that week, just ball striking the shit out of it, running in so many 15-footers that, with just convincing fist pumps that we just don't see out of him anymore. Um, but again, he's looking slightly less sloppy. You know, just he's got a little cleaner whites on in the summertime. Uh, a little bit of I, a puka shell thing going on here? I don't maybe? remember if there was a puka shell there. but okay. Some kind of like neck, uh, like, necklace i think going on or something but um, but i wonder this kind of setup what scores would look like 10 years later like with yeah. this level of bomber and the, like just the the total like the plethora of guys that are capable of taking a course like that deep in this yeah. era i just wonder what that would look like i you know the congo was like so mad over the membership that you know that it didn't show like it was supposed to and stuff i just don't i, I don't know if you ever play congressional but it's just not that interesting of a course like maybe the redo that they've just done uh, you know will change that um andrew green who's like a really good you know young architect or whatever i think is a guy but goodness like it's just not really like that compelling to watch golf there like it's you know yeah and yeah you just need it to be firm or you need some kind of conditions because yeah balls are backspinning with seven irons and stuff like that and um so Schwartzel, uh, Schwartzel and Y.E. Yang uh, get in at three under in round one. Y.E., yet again, he's paired with Anthony Kim and Rio Ishikawa. I honestly thought Rio was Ricky. Rio looks like he's dressed like Ricky Fowler. And I like rewound it. I was like, wait, oh, no, no, that's Rio Ishikawa. Um, round two, Rory goes deep again, shoots 66. He holds out a pitching wedge from the fairway. He actually hit it in the water on the 18th and made double to shoot 66 and gets in at 11 under through two rounds. Um Five shots clear of Y.E. Yang, nine shots clear of third after two rounds. Uh, Robert Garrigus, Sergio, uh, ZJ, Kucher, and Sneds all at two under. Brant Job, Kim Kyung Tai, Robert Rock, and Heath Slocum all in the top 10 after 36 holes. This is, might be why Rory's able to win this shot, win this event by eight shots. He shoots 68 on Saturday, leads by eight over Y.E. Yang. Uh, the guy just doesn't go away. Rory shoots 69 on Sunday, hits the iconic shot in front of the whole gallery on 10, the par three there to a foot, shoots 16 under. Day finishes in second at minus eight. 
Yang, Garrigus, and Kevin Chappell and Lee Westwood all tie for third uh, at 10 shots back. And yeah, we're uh, just a masterclass. The, 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 the Cinderella story, the rebound from the heartache at Augusta. And uh, he's now a major champion at 21 years old. So, and does the happy Father's Day, Dad, as he, as he walks off. So. And Grant McDowell, like, was hanging around to watch Rory, like, giving him fist pumps uh, and, and them being, like, best of buds and then about to basically, like, you know, not speak again because of their management dispute or whatever. Like, they, the whole, like, the, those two are, like, mentors and best friends thing is kind of funny looking back. Like, when's the last time you heard, like, Graham talk about Rory or Rory talk about Graham? Like, not, but, but I don't think they're not on, like, speaking. To, I know things no, got sure sour. I think they've gotten better. I mean, Rory stroked, like, what, a $20 million check towards the management company or whatever it was just to, like, get on with it. But that's a little underreported. We should dive into that at some point. But God, That was such a weird thing, right? Like, the management people totally – Rory found out that he was totally getting screwed over and was like, uh, excuse me? Like, or, you know, I don't even remember the, the specific details of it, but it just seemed like a kind of a nuts thing. Yeah, and I just, but I just like he probably could have fought it harder than he did, but he said rather than have the distraction, it was I super baller move. Yeah, to stroke just like, a twenty million dollar check, like leave me alone. Don't, yeah. don't, I don't want to sit in a deposition ever again. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really pretty much all I've got from congressional. It's kind of like uh, I rem- I do remember watching that with like uh, just a. I don't know, like just such reverence for that performance. I remember being super amped for that. I was really. I don't know if that's where my Rory fandom really started, but I was like, oh shit, we got a new guy. Like it's the, it's the new, I don't want to say the new tiger, but like we got a new like up and coming guy. Like people don't run out and win majors by eight shots at age 21. And that got me super amped. So I think that's kind of where my Royal allegiance probably, probably started right around that time. I do remember pulling hard from him that just because I, I remember him crying. Like he put his head in his hand at Augusta on, yeah. um, I think it's 13. He hit it left into the trees or whatever. And it was like, he knew at that moment that it was over. He was not going to shoot 32 in the back nine or whatever, that that was like the end of the masters for him. And just feeling like I wanted to like hug him and be like, Oh man, like it's, it's okay. You're going to have so many shots. At the <laughs> There's no way this place is going to hold up to you. There's, there's no way 10 years from now, you'll still be chasing the masters. Then we go over to St. George's. Um, which, gosh, I kind of remember this one being maybe a little more interesting than it actually ended up being. Uh, Thomas Bjorn and, and Tom Lewis, the amateur, shoots 65 in round one. Tom. Lucas Glover and Webb Simpson and uh, Miguel Angel Jimenez at minus four. Darren Clark's in a big group at two. Clark and Glover finish at uh, four under after two rounds. Glover, again, asserting himself. Uh, Thomas Bjorn, again, trying to avenge the one he let get away in 2003 is one shot back with Chad Campbell at minus three. Darren Clark's in the lead after three rounds at five under. DJ asserts himself and is at four. Ricky and Bjorn are at two. Uh, Phil goes out on that Sunday, shoots five under on the front to tie the lead and got it all the way to six under, but he bogeyed 14 uh, and then had a, gave a couple more back uh, coming down the stretch. DJ, two back, playing the par five, 14th. Pretty much shanks at OB, makes double. Darren Clark has a four-shot lead, made bogey on the last two, and uh, wins the Open Championship in, in in style. Has has the walk up eighteen with a three-shot lead, knowing he can't lose it, and uh, and all of Northern Ireland celebrates their third different major title winner in a six-major stretch or something like that, five-major stretch. So you mentioned Phil in, earlier in the pod. You were talking about you know misses so many short putts. Uh, in this era, which is totally true. And I think it's actually kind of 
fascinating how much Phil like doesn't miss those putts now. Like he figured out putting at some point uh, to where like you know the, the I was thinking about the Sakia. Like there's not really a short putt that he missed that you could think like oh like that that was a huge like costly mistake. Like he you know mostly when he made bogeys it was because he hit him in shitty spots or whatever and and didn't make apartments but like he phil used to always be good for like two or three like four foot like just total misses total miss. like he, he, if he had figured out putting the way he did in his if in his third if he had putted like he did in his 40s and his 30s he would have won two or three more majors there were so many in just the two like the two year stretch that i was covering for this where i just saw him miss short putts that were not even close to the right speed like they're way too firm, but they're firm and low. Like he he had a serious issue with short putts in this time period. He bogeyed, sorry, he bogeyed 13, 15, and 16 to finish at two under, which was three shots back. But for a player that for even to this point, I think people aren't really even fully noticing how well Phil is doing in British Opens. Yeah. This era, like that was the big knock on him was that he couldn't play that style of golf. And you know, he he sneaks up there, sneaks up there for a long time in opens before he finally wins one. And it still was kind of like a, a stunner that uh, he finished third at in 2004. And that was his best ever finish before this T2 misses the cut in 12 and then wins it in 2013. And then Troon, he almost wins another one in 2016, of course. This so. is the, the evolution that I'm hoping that JT will make uh, as he gets to <laughs> third, that he will you know figure out Lynx golf and uh, start to... Uh... <laughs> He's, you know, he's got the creative mind to do it. I'll, I'll concede that, but uh, still needs to sort of figure it out a little bit. And then lastly for 2011, this is a harder one to cover. Horrific YouTube collection here from the PGA of America. The only major that doesn't have anything up for their biggest championships. Big win there. Uh, who can you, can you tell me who jumped out to a first round lead? Seven under par, tying a major championship record, 63 in round one at Atlanta Athletic Club. Oh my God. Uh... You know what? I think I do know this because part of what kicked off this pod was me. Like, it's, is it Steve Stricker? It is Steve Stricker. He yeah, did. I would have never guessed that other than the fact that for some reason, because the women's KPG BMG was at Atlanta Athletic Club, I was like, huh, I haven't thought about like when Keegan won in a while. And then I was like, whoa, <laughs> yep. Steve Stricker just roasted the field in the first round. That pretty much is what contributed to us doing this podcast. But Jerry Kelly, 500, Sean McKeel, 400, Scott Verplank, 300. That's your leaderboard after round one at Atlanta Athletic Club in 2011. Uh, always talk about Jerry Kelly. Like, was he going to make, and this is totally irrelevant other than like, it's the only reason I think about Jerry Kelly, but it was like Jerry Kelly going to be able to, get the John Deere flight to the British Open. It's like, I don't care, man. Like, That's <laughs> like, that was back in the era when like everybody had to charter a flight to make it from John Deere to the British. And I was like, yeah, that's just not that compelling of a storyline to me. It's okay. <laughs> Sorry, Jerry. There's too many people to keep track of. So. Uh, Sean McKeel, who's in the hunt after round one, just to give him a shout out. T74 he finished in this tournament. But... He finished solo second in the 2006 PGA to Tiger, and Tiger has prevented Sean McKeel from being a two-time major winner, which he doesn't get enough credit for almost winning a second major. Sean McKeel's like, yeah, like he, he everyone again, like think of him as a one-hit wonder, but he had the similar kind of Y.E. Yang path, right? Like he was in a couple others that was like, you were like, wow, okay. It was his only other top 10 in a major, but uh, <laughs> but sure, yeah, let's let's go with that. Okay, let's go okay, yeah. to Sean McKeel. He's been through enough. Yeah. Keegan and Duff shoot 64 and 65, respectively, to tie the lead uh, after round two. Furick, DA points. John Sennon and Scott Verplank all won back. 
Um, Duff and Brendan Steele are tied after three rounds. Keegan's one shot back. Sunday comes around. Brendan Steele fades very quickly, makes four early bogeys, shoots 77, finishes T19 playing in the final group. Again, almost every one of the majors during this time period has a Brendan Steele that does this in the final round <laughs> of the major. Robert Carlson makes a move with an eagle on 12, putting him within a shot of the lead. Anders Hansen, birdies 12 and 13 to get within two shots of Duff. David Toms makes a move. He birdies six of nine holes at one stretch. Uh, Keegan Eagles uh, 12 to tie the lead at nine under. Duff birdies 12 and 13, takes a two-shot lead. We get to 15. Keegan hits it in the greenside bunker on this par three that has water to the right. Famous hole. David Toms aced it in 2003. Keegan chips it into the water, goes to the drop area, can't get it up, and now makes triple. Duffner leads by five as Keegan has three holes remaining. Duff steps up on 15 and hits it in the water. But he gets it up and down for bogey. At the same time, though, Keegan birdies 16. The lead is now three. Duff doesn't get it up and down from a greenside bunker on 16. Lead is two. Keegan birdies 17 from way downtown while Duff is standing on 17T. Duff three putts 17. And all of a sudden, the lead is gone. They both par 18. We go to a playoff. I remember the playoff being a lot more fun than it actually was uh, because they both stuff it on 16. Duffner to 18 feet, or sorry, to eight feet. Keegan to four. And of course, Duff misses the putt. Keegan makes his. Duffner three putts 17 again. Uh, so D Keegan's got a two shot lead. Hits it to 18 feet in the playoff. Duff to 20. Duff makes the 20 footer to make Keegan have to two putt from 18 feet, but he easily does. Uh, first person to win a major championship with a belly putter, Keegan Bradley, easily makes it. And yeah, just an, again, we know the name Keegan Bradley now, but we did not at the time. He was a rookie on the PJ Tour at that point, and that's who was winning majors in, the, in 2011. Uh, the only thing that I'll say to this is that uh, right around this time, uh, my um, ex-wife was pregnant with our second kid, and uh, we were like thinking of names and stuff, and. Funny, like I'm not this much of a golf sicko, but like I, we were throwing around Rory as like a name for a girl. So we were like, that'd be kind of a cool name for a girl. Like maybe like Gilmore Girls kind of maybe inspired it partially. But my mom was like, oh, I, I, Rory's a terrible name. Like we're you, you know don't don't do that. Or whatever we because we, and we were like, oh okay, we can't do that. And then Keegan Bradley was like won the, the PGA, and we were like, huh, Keegan's a really cool name. Like. Why, why don't we name our, our kid if it's a girl Keegan? And so my second daughter is named Keegan. And I, so I mentioned this to Keegan Bradley once, thinking like, uh, you know, not being like we named her after you, but like, oh, when you won the PGA, like we were thinking about naming our kid. And we were like, Keegan's a cool name. And, and thinking that he'd be like, oh, wow, like that's interesting. And he was like, yeah, I get that a lot. Like a lot of people did that to me. <laughs> so apparently there's a lot of Keegan inspiration out there for uh, whether it's girls or, or boys or what. But uh, yeah. there's some Keegan stories out there, man. He's there's a there's probably a pretty decent reason why we don't find ourselves rooting for that guy. But, he did not think it was. Uh, yeah, wasn't uh, wasn't a good connection for us to make. But yeah, but, I don't know. It was dramatic. It, you know, I guess maybe more for bad reasons and I, I again it feels a lot better that duff wins one two years later because it was pretty heartbreaking for duff to have not won that one and it was a sign of things to come honestly on the putting of just like whoa dude like that was really not close um but duffner is like gosh he low-key was a banger there for a little while and in yeah. In, the, in this stretch, and he has really, really, unfortunately, fallen off. But. He was in it and whistling, too. I didn't mention that, but he was hanging around. He was in the top 10 there, so, too. So, it's like, 
And again, ball strikers, like you didn't have to drive it out of your shoes back then. To Funny story. I was actually at, I forgot to say this. I was at the 2010 U.S. Open for a day um, at Pebble Beach. And I ended up running into a buddy of mine from college who I had no idea was working in the golf industry and had was in the agent world and had, uh, was started, was representing a player. And I was like, oh, who you represent? And I was, he like points over like, that's my guy right there. And he points over to this dude with a big lip in his mouth belly hanging over a white belt doing this weird waggle and it was jason duffner i was like yeah cool man yeah congratulations that seems that seems great and then like sure enough he like emerges onto the scene and i I get super amped like that's my buddy's boy Uh, (laughs) i just i just remember like looking at duff and be like this guy ain't gonna make anything sure enough he made a lot take us into the last year all right so 2012 masters Things you might remember from this. Um... Question for you before we get into this. Does 2012 fit in this podcast? Because it kind of is more of the transition year into like things are shaping up now. Yes. I would say that 2012 is the true transition. This is where like the big names that um, are now sort of uh, relevant. I mean, you you get Webb winning the U.S. Open uh, and then Webb kind of fell off the map um, for a while when the putter ban happened. And so then he comes back. And it's a great player again. So it's it's a little bit of both um, in that sense. Uh, but Rory, again, kind of like he roasts the 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 Kiwa at the, at the end of this year. And so that's a true, like we when Rory won his first, I think it was like he was still like, all right, who is this guy? Like, this is awesome. Like, this is just how big of it. And then when he wins his second, it's like, oh, okay. Well, this oh is kind of evolving into the Rory era. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the number one player in the world, you know, at this, at this point, he goes um, and signs the big Nike deal after yeah. this year. Yep. So, so I think, yeah, the, the 2012 is where we get the true transition of things. I won't go too deep into it. Um, but you know, again, Lee Westwood here, I mean, how many times has Lee Westwood sort of been, you know, in the mix at the masters and not, um, not gotten it done. He, he comes out and shoots 67 solo first round leader, uh, Peter Hansen, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is in this. Um, <laughs> uh, Roy McIlroy, again, also, uh, after two rounds, is only a shot back. So you're thinking like, oh, maybe Rory's already going to get his quick redemption. Maybe this cor- uh, course does really suit him. But Can I really, do a quick trivia question for you? Absolutely, absolutely. Top five, number of top fives in majors for Lee Westwood. What do you got? God, I would guess... Top fives. I would guess. I'm going to be realistic. I'm not going to guess yeah. way over like uh, like Neil and DJ always do. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say uh, six. Twelve. Twelve. You doubled it. Wow. I, would have that, I was going to say that ten would have been too many. I was, I was thinking like oh, I got a lot of top tens, but no. Twelve top fives in eighty-seven majors. Three runner-ups. Six third places. So nine top three finishes in majors for Lee Westwood. Wow. That's. Hmm. That's hard. It's, that's yeah. I didn't even I didn't even say that he bogeyed three of the last four at the 2009 uh, Open Championship to miss the playoff by one. I that's, totally left that out. But that's a totally like often like overlooked part of that. Like Lee Westwood could have you know been in that playoff with he had a much more makeable birdie putt than Tiger. It, it was so not shocking that he bogeyed three of the last four to miss the playoff that I didn't even bother mentioning it. <laughs> Um, so again, Duffner is, uh, you know, he's tied for, um, tied for lead after two rounds with Fred couples, mm. uh, old man, Fred is, uh, still sort of hanging around in this, but, um, the real story kind of at, at the last day is that Peter Hansen is uh, after shooting a 65 on Saturday and Phil Mickelson 
uh, are are basically like the two kind of lead dogs here at nine. Peter Hansen leads by one, nine under par. Phil Mixon at eight under par. Louis hanging around at seven, and Bubba Watson uh, at six under par. Uh, this is before we begin. This is the first time that we begin to sort of understand that uh, Bubba was be well suited to um, Augusta National, and that maybe uh, the last few years are, have shown us that uh, left-handers uh, have a distinct advantage here. Mm. At, at the masters um before we sort of a close out here i just want to say like that um like before i get deep into this the 2012 uh was was the year that sort of rory and caroline's uh relationship began to sort of be splashed all over social media you can sort of begin to see some of the things that would um make rory a little bit sick of himself overexposed like they're constantly he and caroline are constantly tweeting about uh places that they're going or he's like oh, i haven't picked her up in a while like at the airport i'm so excited to see her and uh a lot of gushy like young people uh sort of oversharing on instagram and or on real mostly on twitter because instagram doesn't really exist yet at this point so rory's got some old tweets out there from like when he was like in college like basically at college age about like jaeger bombs and stuff like that <laughs> i think we could do a whole podcast going back to the beginning of rory's twitter account which would be awesome if somehow we could get rory to join and participate like maybe that's on golf pass i don't know like but uh that would be kind of a really fun trip to see rory to be like hey, what are we thinking on this one here let's uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get some deep uh so we're just going to kind of skip ahead to the end here of this one um Peter Hansen comes out pretty shaky, uh, but you're thinking, okay, like Phil's gonna, he's gonna be the the dude in this. But then Louis Oosthuizen, who hasn't really, you know, since his Open Championship win, hasn't really been much of a factor in majors. He double eagles uh, number two at the Masters, and and Faraday has the famous uh, "come to Papa" call, which there's there's some dispute about whether it actually happened live or whether it was on tape. And he sort of <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> there's a big talk about how this is the first time that a double eagle has ever been shown at the masters on camera. And there's all this talk about Saracen's double eagle, but you know, this is the first one that we sort of remember seeing um, pretty just incredible four iron into the the left side of that green that then trickles all the way across and, and dunks in the hole. Like a, easily one of the most memorable kind of iconic shots of the masters in the last 20 some years. And you see it, literally every single year that uh we, the, the high years. five whiff is the best part though yes I mean, so just, getting to that so just completely um i mean almost a total whiff with Ian's caddy like barely i would say the outside like um palm portion of louis's hand barely nicks his caddy's thumb that's about how close it was to a total whiff on a high five they've been slow motion too it's just like yeah. oh god i could picture it from a mile away question yeah. for you for this time period yes do we know that? And I've, I've kind of come back around slightly on this guy. Do we know about Bubba at this point? Do we not like Bubba? Do we, you know? I think we I, kind of like him at this point. I think I remember liking Bubba at this point. Yeah, he's he's you know very southern, very sort of um, we're thinking like genuinely shapes the ball a ton of different ways. He's got the pink driver. Like no one, you know, he hasn't done anything. He hasn't. He's never like yelled at Teddy in public. At this point, like everyone's kind of like, oh, Bubba Watson, like he, one of the, he's the longest player in the game. So it's like back then, nobody was hitting it 350 like he was, you know. And, and so that's what when Bubba came onto the scene, it was like the beginning of the Trackman era, too. So I remember like everyone was like, God, I, I would love to see Bubba's Trackman numbers. Yeah. Or whatever. And 
there was a lot of the talk of he's never had a lesson and his, his hair's wild and stuff. So, yeah, like I think Bubba, everyone was kind of in on this at this moment. If unless you're like a big Ustazen fan, yeah, you didn't really mind that uh, you know Bubba won this Masters. But before we kind of get to to the end of it, it's really important to sort of discuss what happened with Phil Mickelson on the fourth hole of the Masters. So at this point, he is God about this. Because of Louis' double eagle, Phil uh, is he's still a shot back, even though Peter Hansen has kind of already kind of collapsed. But it's like you're kind of thinking, like, well, Phil's won the Masters like three times. He's even totally, year two. Yeah, you're like he's totally going to win this Masters. He, he's he's like in control. He might not be in the lead, but like he's in the driver's seat. And Phil, he's playing pretty decent, uh, you know, to start. And then he decides on the fourth green that he's going to intentionally hit it into the stands left of four green. Now I thought he was intentionally trying to hit it in the left bunker. Well, I guess there's it's yeah. it's it, yeah, I'm intentionally hitting it in the left bunker, or like if it goes in the stands, like I get a drop, like it, it's nothing, there's no bad things that can happen over there. Now, this is the the explanation that happens kind of afterwards. They you as I watched it yesterday, you can hear him and Bones talking. There's no discussion of like hit it into that bunker or like make sure you're left or whatever. Bones is just like, hey, you know, be committed to the swing. Like you're, you know, you got this, blah, blah, blah. There's no like, and, and you get, I will say, listening to some of these, um, this is especially true at Olympic, you get to hear a lot of caddy player conversations. I don't know whether this era was sort of a little different, but there wasn't a lot of like crosstalk over the, you know, blabbly blabbing over the conversation so you get to hear a lot of stuff which is a lot of strategy which is neat but phil of course just hammers it into the stands and it ricochets off of where the stands are and then goes backward into an area that no one really thinks about of augusta at all like i've seen guys hit it long into the i thought rory hit it into the the hedges behind fourth green yeah you see a lot of guys like hit it short right in that bunker whatever what i will say is like Phil's reasoning after was like, oh, well, it's such an easy up and down from that bunker. Like, you know, it, it, the green was just playing so hard that day. Like, there's a lot of groups that already came through there. And no one was basically like, whoa, can't hold this green. Got to hit it left into the bunker. Like, <laughs> he was, this is Phil out thinking himself. It was nobody, Phil. No. Let's hit in the bunker. <laughs> <laughs> so he'll get a chance to play out of that left bunker. <laughs> so... He hits it and finds it in like deep into the crap. So there's a whole like discussion between him and Bones. And you could tell that that Phil realizes like, I've really fucked this up badly because they can't take an unplayable because an unplayable will go backwards further into the woods and basically leave him with nothing. So he gets he flips a club over and decides like he's going to hit it right handed. But there's really no way for him to swing. He's got to basically like chop down on it. Like scoop it almost. Yes, exactly. So he does this and the ball maybe goes a foot. Like mm. it, it stays very much into the shit. And so now it's like Faldo and Ferdy and Ian Baker Finch are like about to like melt down. They're like, oh no, it's just <laughs> mad. He just got to, it should have gone back to the T. I think the chances of getting making hitting on the green in three from the team much better than here. I so, will say when things go wrong, Faldo is usually pretty good. Yeah. Of like was, just conveying like what a complete disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So Phil has to take another right-handed swing. <laughs> this. I don't know if you remember oh. two right-handed oh. And he does it in sort of a like a um, hooky like hooks way. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's a club where it almost hits him. Like it almost like nicks his foot as he's going by. <laughs> so he manages to get it onto what is like at Augusta where it's like that weird area of like sand slash green slash walking path. All right. So he's left of the green still. He's taken three shots to to get to here. So his fourth, he goes, he either pulls it or he tries to go at the pin from where he is. Instead of just like hitting it left of the pin and like trickling it down and being like, ah, made a five, that sucks. He tries to like make a miracle shot and hits it into the bunker. So finally, now after four shots, he is in the bunker that he intended to be in. Then... (laughs) Phil being Phil, he almost chips it in from there, like extremely close, but doesn't make it and then taps in for a six. So he's gone from essentially like probably being the true leader of the tournament to being basically out of it. I mean, he's in it sort of throughout the day, but he's so kind of deflated by what happened that he can never really quite recover. Yeah, it, it, I remember it being like Phil's, like it was like Phil's coronation and we were all expecting it. But again, again, what do we said a million times in this era? Like whoever you thought was going to do it probably didn't aside from Rory running away. And then Louie had the one run away. Like it really is just this era of like, well, really that happened. Huh? I think it's an underrated Phil collapse. Like I don't think people talk yeah. about it that much in terms of just because it happened so early in the round. Right. And it's like, Oh yeah. I don't really I remember this tournament for Bubba hitting the big, you know, the whippy wedge around the, uh, on 10, you don't really remember it for Phil completely like falling apart. Early how, how about I quizzed you on Lee Westwood who had 12 top five finishes in majors, yeah. Bubba Watson, top tens in majors. Wow. Um, eight, five, five. Okay. Well, five to all top fives win, win runner up in the playoff in 2010. And then two T fives, his major record is, pretty bad relatively speaking yeah. yet he's won two titles it's it's fascinating to think about the word and he emerged on the scene at oakmont right like the yeah. least likely place that you would think that like bubba would have been right so um hmm. so uh tiger really not a factor at all in this tournament plays really pretty poorly but does one thing that i had totally forgotten about or even if i remembered it cbs does not mention this and i i want you to go back and watch it someday but Tiger makes a birdie uh, on 18 to finish at five over for the tournament and looks at like at someone over in the stands and does kind of like a jerk off motion, like, and, and <laughs> like with his mouth being like, uh, whatever, like, like I'm so, this is so freaking annoying, whatever it is. It's kind of one of the more like untiger like things that I can remember, like tiger doing like, uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe that's what maybe that was in, in, in response to Billy Payne. Like, oh, oh yeah, you can play a little, little shitty little tournament. Delightful. Uh, so a bunch of guys, uh, you know, are sort of in it. But, you know, it, it ultimately is is just Bubba and Louie. Uh, they both have putts uh, that could win the Masters on 18. Um, but Louie has, hits his approach way long and has to kind of um, trickle it down the hill doesn't really have a chance. Bubba has a real chance, misses it. Uh, they play 18 and again is the playoff uh, to start over again. And I cannot emphasize 
like what a good putt Louis hit on 18 mm. in the playoff that should have gone in. Like it, every single putt, it was left of the hole. So like if we're looking backwards at the back down on the green from like the tower, he's he's left of the hole. Every single putt from there breaks left. His putt just stays up right above the hole. Really? Like, Faldo cannot believe it. It misses by like such a hair. Like if it's, I'm not kidding. If it's probably a quarter inch left, it catches the lip and falls in because it was like pretty good speed too. So uh, the, the another thing where like Louis Oseason could have a lot of majors. Uh, oh yeah. my God. He, he has more top two finishes at majors than Rory does. Like <laughs> it's wild, man. It's seriously wild. So they go to 10 for the second playoff hole and Bubba just absolutely nukes a drive uh, right. And to, to Faldo's credit, he calls it like right before it happens. It's like, you know, if he doesn't turn this over and fade it around the corner, it could just go miles into the trees. And it's exactly what happens. And uh, so then what's kind of like sort of horrifying, this is where Louis sort of really kind of blew it, is he switches from driver to three wood. And he's like, all right, Bubba's in a world of hurt. And he blows three wood way right. And it Mm. clatters around in the trees and actually kicks back down into like the, the, whatever they call it at Augusta, the first cut, uh, you know, the, not the rough, but the second cut, secondary cut. Yeah. And, but he's got like two forty or two thirty or something into that green. So Louie hits it down. He hits a decent shot, but it's just, it's too far. It's down. Like it's probably like right at the front edge of the green. It's, it's three feet short of the green or whatever. So, Bubba's got, you know, you think he's got nothing, but to CBS's credit, they're like, you know, I've seen him, Faldo again. Like, I don't know what happened when Faldo started falling asleep at the wheel, but like, he's actually given some pretty good insight into this stuff. And Faldo's like, I've seen Bubba on the on the range, like hit a big hook wedge that goes, you know, 50 yards in the air. He could just turn it around and do that. And I, I'm thinking, I remember watching it and thinking like, there's no freaking way. Yeah. He's not going to be able to hook this around the tree. Uh-huh. He's going, and what's nuts is like, he, he clips it so like he kind of hits down into it so it goes high it wasn't just like he hit it low kind of hooking around like he man he crushed it and the ball was like high and spinning and it's just like nance can't believe it it's like what a shot (laughs) (laughs) and then so that's a great nance So they get up the green and and Louis hits a really kind of a the the pin is way back on 10 and uh, that day and Louis hits kind of a pretty, I would say, a skanky chip that goes beyond the pin, like 10 feet. And it's like right up against the collar, but then almost makes the putt, the par putt there. That would have at least made Bubba, like if he wanted to win it, like have to make the birdie. And then as a result, like Bubba just two putts easily for. Hmm. Um, but one thing I wanted to sort of uh, point out uh, here is that this is the first example I can remember of Ricky Fowler is waiting around the green. Oh my to God. Greet the winner. So this starts a. We're talking about the change of eras. This starts a, a change for Rick too. He's he's the first congratulator. The, all the tears flow. I remember that. And I remember I crying a lot. Yep, saying yep. I never, I never made it this far in my dreams, which I thought was a pretty. It's good a great line. It's oh. I will not make fun of that one. So yeah, yeah. It's it. I remember too when he ran that putt by. He like calms the crowd down. Like not yet, not yet. It's like an eighteen inch putt. He's yeah. like, no, no, no. Calm down, calm down. <laughs> all right, so. 2012 U.S. Open uh, Olympic Club, which we are uh, familiar with because uh, just had the women's U.S. Open there. Do you remember Solly Tiger's position at this U.S. Open after 36 holes? Leader, and I believe one Alan Shipnuck declared the tournament over. Tournament over. This is what I alluded to early in the uh, in the beginning of the pod. 
like I think we started this a week ago, uh, <laughs> Tiger, <laughs> everyone kind of thought like, oh, Tiger, he, Tiger was super in control of his irons. So I'll say mm-hmm. in his defense, he, he was hitting like, you see, if you watch some, if you Google like Tiger highlights, he was hitting like these sweet like stingers and like, oh yeah. And just, he had like, seemed like total control over everything. He had a side twirl going that week. It was not like the vertical club twirl. He would like get it like horizontal with a little flick of the wrist as he went to go pick up the tee. I, there's a clip on that floats around on social media or YouTube that I see every now and then. And I, I don't think I can ever replicate that twirl, but it was, he was, remember that shot he hit? It, it's on YouTube too of, I think it's the third hole, maybe the fourth hole. Um, where you're hitting an up, he's got a seven iron in the first cut of the rough and the ball's like below his feet and everything's sloping from left to right. And he hits this like low punch draw up a hill to a front left pin that like Phil Blackmar's the announcer on it. And he's like, yeah. oh, look at this shot. What is this? Yeah, they all uh, think he's setting up to hit a fade. And then yeah. Punch draw is like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, I think part, I, again, like I think if you think about like Tiger the Artist, that's a pretty big, like you think that Olympic would sort of yeah. suit, right? Because like he he got to shape every shot. Every shot is off an unhealed lie, un, uneven lie. Like that would be a a place that you would think it would set up well for him. Yep. Uh, and again, evidence that golf Twitter was a different world. Uh, looked up Shipnuck's tournament over tweet, and it had no replies to it, uh, and only fourteen retweets. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> It's possible that Twitter changed their deal so that the replies weren't attached to it. Yeah, them. that might. I think a, Twitter the replies weren't always attached to stuff back in the day. That makes sense, actually. But I will say, like, just like one like and like fourteen retweets. So like that stuff has stayed has remained. Like that's there just wasn't quite the same amount of interaction. Like if if you tweeted that now, like tournament over after right. you know, Rory being, oh. it would be a, a shit show. <laughs> you would both get people that were oh, it was over yesterday and also how could you declare it's over <laughs> uh so a couple of amateurs future u.s open champions make their debut uh u.s open debut in this do you remember who those could you tell me who those were amateur champions that made their debut well oh, amateur future u.s open champions who made their u.s open debut as amateurs in this championship gotcha um uh, well, I know John Peterson makes a run, but I know he's not a future U.S. Open champion. Uh, no, I, I, I don't. This is the first time we see Jordan Spieth. Uh, really? And Brooks Kepka both make their debuts in the U.S. Open as amateurs here. Uh, Kepka misses the cut going plus 14 after two rounds, but Jordan Spieth makes the cut and finishes tied for 21st. Do uh, not, do not, I have no recollection of that. Spieth's not a great um u.s open player i would say has only really had three i would say good u.s opens but one of them is this which is it finishes uh t21 it finishes like t16 i think uh maybe that's at aaron hills uh and then uh obviously one at chambers so like of all the speed u.s opens like this is among like the top 30 hmm. percent so uh kind of interesting. you can see him in the um he's actually there when Webb is about to get the trophy before Birdman makes an emergence speed is the <laughs> OM. Uh, really? So. Uh, do you remember, though, there was another amateur who did much better in this tournament. Do you remember who that might Bo be? Hostler. I Bo remember Hostler. that. Yeah, so Bo Hostler's in it. Like, you know, like, Sirius actually contending for uh, yes. the US Open a lot. But uh, if you were sort of into social media back then, you uh, might remember that there was something else uh, about Bo Hostler that people remember from this tournament. Did he have braces or did he? 
I don't remember. He had a really hot mom. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about this. <laughs> Bo Hosler's mom, Amy. Very cute woman, you know, just in her 40s, whatever. Um, like, shout out to women in their 40s. They're absolutely gorgeous. I'm about to marry one. Uh, but Bo Hosler's mom is like the talk of Twitter. And like the big lead is writing us stories about her. And like a lot of jokes about how Tiger may not go home with a trophy, but he's going oh my home God. with Bo Hosler's mom. Like a very, very funny content. Like a, to me, in some ways, like an evolution of like, hey, golf Twitter is a place where we just basically make very stupid jokes that are very yeah. inappropriate. So. Yeah, I uh, see a Bleacher Report. It's all over there. Uh, oh, gosh. Not going to lie. Went to Bo Hoster's Instagram today. Uh, saw a pic of his mom. Still hot. <laughs> oh, God. Shout out to Amy Bowles, I believe her name is. Uh, do you know who Blake Adams is, Sully? Have you ever heard I of him? I do remember the name, yes. Okay. Blake Adams was two shots off the lead going into the final round of Olympic. I don't remember that. That's for sure. Blake Adams played in two major championships in his life. He finished T21, this one, and T7. How about that? Like, you only ever play in two majors, and you finished top 25 in both. What was the T7? Uh, I believe it was a PGA. Interesting. I can look that up while you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'd not, I'd, I did not remember Blake Adams at all. So this is the um, – Furyk, you know, is really sort of the guy who everyone expects to win. Uh, this is kind of the, the pinnacle of him, like, driving it straight, hitting great iron shots. Also, since we've touched on fashion, this is where Furyk is wearing the five-hour energy hat. Mm. Uh, very straight and led to a lot of jokes afterwards that maybe it should have been a four-and-a-half-hour energy hat because he sort of ran out of gas uh, near the end. What you probably remember most from this US Open the final round, uh, other than the Birdman, is that Furyk hits a such skanky, like, snappy hook on 16. And... They had actually moved the tees up 100 yards on Sunday, which I surprised, like, other than the weird shit they were doing at Chambers, like, I can't remember a hole where they moved up 100 yards. Uh, well, and it's that's the hole where you need to hit, like, a snap. You need to hit a snap hook when yeah. you move that tee up that far, whereas, and they hadn't, he hadn't hit that shot in a practice round or something yeah. like that. I will say, this era, if you watch a lot of the golf, a lot easier to hit snap hooks back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the clubs now, like, a lot of the reason the guys hit like bomb fades is because that's an easier shot to hit. And it's harder to turn the ball over with the newer clubs. And back then, like you, if you trying to hit a draw and you got a little bit ahead of it, like with your roll in your hands a little bit much, you were, I mean, Tiger hit in the Pebble Beach uh, open, one of the nastiest snap hooks that I think I've ever seen him hit and into like six foot deep uh, hay and somehow made a freaking par out of it. So um, that was kind of where uh, Furyk sort of started to sort of uh, unravel a little bit. Uh, Webb Simpson just kind of like super steady, like made a bunch of birdies, not a bunch, but made you know several birdies to, he came, he started the day, like uh, I believe he was four down, four behind. Um, like not, you know, was not a guy who was really, yeah, four down, four down to start the day. It was not someone that anyone thought like, oh yeah, he's going to go out and tear it up. Um, was tied. I think he was like T28 after round two or something like that. He was like one of the dudes that's like the poster boys for like how far back is too far back. Like don't go. You can go pretty far down the list. Started 72, 73. Uh, just, you know, was not even. And and the lead was one under. So it was like, boy, he, you know, the, he he started to just get hot with like this is again, like another guy after Keegan, first guy ever to 
to win with the anchored putter like Webb was sort of like you know another sort of resounding like oh this might be uh, an advantage this might be a way to uh, you know to yeah. do all this also Ernie Els uh, really like if you think about like the like Furyk and Els kind of the two legends in this both of them could have won this U.S. Open uh, mm-hmm. not not great putting from Ernie down the stretch like start of the stretch of you know Ernie's a, he's gonna win you know a major this year spoiler mm-hmm. uh, but. It's still like he's he's been in the wilderness for a while. He's hitting it really good with his irons. So you're starting to be like, oh, maybe Ernie's back, but just doesn't putt well enough. Lee Westwood, once again, same deal. Well, on that note, Jim Furyk, top fives. And I don't even have to look this up. I know this one. Top fives and majors for Jim Furyk. Seven. Sixteen. Sixteen? Sixteen. Top fives? Yeah, yes. like just... A wildly what if career as well. Yeah, did not see that. <laughs> Four runner I mean, up, three U.S. Open runner ups too. I mean, he and Phil are two of the great, like honestly, like U.S. Open players of this era. And the fact that they have one U.S. Open between them is kind of like it's wild. Like, wow. Uh, Webb gets up and down on eighteen from a really like a weird old drain that like there's a lot of controversy about why this one area on next to the green was like all browned out in a perfect circle, but he, they told him he couldn't get relief from it. Um, so he has to kind of like hit like a really classy little chunk and run that gets across the green and he makes a putt uh, to get in. And then Graham McDowell hits, honestly plays 18 really well. Graham McDowell made a steely birdie on 17 to get within a shot. He hit it in the fairway on 18, not, not easy to do. And then hits a great shot, has the like Lexi Thompson putt from behind the pin down the hill and really just did not hit a very good putt. Like, mm-hmm. for some reason, did thought that it was going to break away from the lake. Uh, very, very unclear what kind of read he was getting there, but um, really, really didn't give himself a chance on the putt. And, and then we come to the infamous Birdman, uh, who, <laughs> um, right as Bob Costas is interviewing Webb, you know, talking about what a silly thing. Uh, in the corner of the shot, the Birdman appears. Like, he was smart enough to figure out a way to get into the shot and and gives us a... Oh! Right before Mike Davis, uh, not yet serving as USGA president, but as like <laughs> the VPs, yanks the Birdman off the stage. And to Webb's credit, he delivers a pretty good line in the moment. Enjoy the jail cell, pal. Like I, I think of a lot of dudes in that moment would have not been able to think of something uh, quite so clever. Uh, Bob Costa says something like, "Always oh, something is by, something." It's like that was lame, and then. Webb, yeah, enjoy the jail cell, pal. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool the way that he handled it, I gotta say. But again, like of GMAC, who won the US Open two years prior, Furick, who's leading most of the day, all these names up there. Webb Simpson's the guy that ends up winning it. And, we, and Webb had, was a good player on the on tour for several years before this. But again, it's just like, really? Like, that is not what I had brewing up on this day. No. So. Oh. But, you know, Webb would sort of, uh, it would be a long time again before Webb would be, would finish top 10 in major. Do you know how long? Uh, I can't even think of some Augusta one that he ever top 10. So he did, but in 2019, he finished top 10 at the U.S. Open in 2018. So six years, he went without like really ever being close to contending. Like a lot of, a lot of missed cuts, a lot of T64, T46, T40, T54. Like seemed very much like a a total 
like fluke until you know in the last uh two years alone he's finished he's at a top 10 in a major and a top 12 like four times so yeah pretty and, pretty good and to see what figure it out and won the players as well worth and so the next major web decides to skip uh the major and not even go to the british open the first time this has happened in like 50 years because uh his wife is pregnant and uh he says i i think i'm gonna have a lot of kids but um this is my first one or whatever and i'm i know i'm gonna get a i can play in british opens anytime but i don't i want to be there for my birth of my kid so uh, correct prediction because he has i believe five kids now yes. so uh so we don't uh, we don't have a us open uh winner in the field but no one really cares tiger <laughs> once again goes full tanimal uh opening <laughs> round uh, th this surprised me. Did not remember that that there was multiple Tannimals, uh in this era. Uh, I, I he shot sixty seven. Uh, so wow, I don't remember that. Yeah, sixty six with the Tannimal in the in the um, in the U.S. Open and sixty seven in the British Open with Tannimal. So Tiger, if you're listening, more Tannimals. Uh So um, Adam Scott, of course, uh, just starts out kind of blitzing everyone. Uh, sixty four to be the sort of first round leader. Uh, follows it up with a 67 and a 68. So this is there's 200 bunkers at uh, at St Anne's, and he is navigating them sort of brilliantly. He's got the the big broom putter. This isn't even like the chest anchor putter. This is like you know the the five foot tall broom putter that he's got uh, pressed into his chest. Uh, just a fashion check in. At, at one point, Adam is wearing like a a very nice like gray pullover sweater. But it has like brown, black, and gray elbow patches. Like mm. it's almost like he's a tenured history professor. It's quite. <laughs> um, Tiger is in it. He's not. Uh, he's not doing like uh, outstanding just because Adam is such a in in such a commanding lead. It would become more relevant when uh, Adam starts collapsing. But on the last day, Tiger makes a triple bogey. I don't know if you remember this, but he he hit it into like a pot bunker on the sixth hole. And instead of like tripping backwards or chipping sideways, he tries to like basically hit it like straight vertical in the air and then has to like dodge out of the way as it comes blasting back off the face and almost hits him, makes a triple bogey and is basically not at it at all. Hmm. Um, Ernie Els is like in the final round is, is there, but no one until about the nine, the back nine, no one even really thinks about him because Adam's like cruising. Ernie's kind of stalled. He's not doing anything. But then Ernie Bernie's four of the last uh, nine holes to basically post a number, and Adam is slowly leaking oil as this happens. And and as Els makes his final birdie on eighteen, uh, Adam the lead has fallen to one. He just is just kind of missing. It's not like a a horrendous choke. He just makes four straight bogeys where if one of the shots would end up sort of you know staying on the green, he probably wins this Open Championship, but as you often talk about like at a at Anne's all of the areas around the greens are mowed down really tight until there is then like thick stuff away from the green. So the ball, instead of like holding up right at the green and like leaving you an easy chip runs away from the green and then gets into more like thick stuff trouble. And Adam has a tough time like getting out of it. Ultimately it comes down to uh, Adam needs to make a par to get into a playoff with Ernie L's chooses to hit three wood off 18 T and finds the left pop bunker and has to like to even have a chance to get up and down from like 160 yards 
has to stand in the bunker with one foot, like almost vertical on the wall and chip out sideways. Uh, hits a great shot into 18, like thinks like, okay, I got this. I'm going to make this putt. Uh, it's nowhere close. I remember thinking he was going to make that putt. I really I did. Faldo yep. uh, says uh, Adam Scott is going to be scarred for life for this. It's it, it, it all watching. I, I feel like I've gone back and watched that. And I remember that all of the bogeys he was making, it was all very believable. Like it was not, it wasn't like, dude, you have these easy assholes right in front of you. Don't screw it up. It was just like, dude, like, yeah, that's not easy. And like, you can make a little mistake here. That's probably going to be bogey. A little mistake there. That's probably going to be bogey. Eight teams, a tough one. That's not that difficult of a hole, but you still got to thread the fairway. You got to hit the fairway. Um, and he's probably thinking I need to make birdie to win the tournament here. And it, it just was, it was so painful because it was like, yeah, this could happen. And it did, this could happen. And it did, this could happen. And it did. It wasn't like a big stomach punch. It wasn't, it was just a slow, slow bleed that was truly difficult to watch. But I just, I don't remember thinking it was a choke. I don't know if you felt that watching, rewatching it. It just felt like, man, everything just didn't work out very good for four straight holes. I was really rooting for Adam Scott because he's such a nice dude. And so I remember like trying to talk myself into that. Maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't a choke because things, maybe he got some bad bounces. Things didn't go his way. It seemed like the one on 17, he just kind of flew an iron, like maybe four yards long. And it, of course it hit the slope and went down into it like a really shitty, uh, thick, thick, thick stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, if you got to make one par to win the British Open at four holes, and you know. any, like that, it's hard to argue that's not a choke. But like it, it wasn't like nerve. Well, I'll say what it was. It wasn't like nervy swings. Like he was making some good contact and stuff. It wasn't like he was. It wasn't like Peter Hansen. I think we missed talking about this, but hit a hit a shank on twelve at Augusta that didn't make the water. <laughs> well, there was nothing like that. Uh, it was just things where, and he's yeah. never been a great putter, so that yeah. kind of reared its head when things. I will say credit to Ernie Els. They go in and they talk to him, and the first thing he says is, "I just really feel for Adam. Like he's he's a really good friend of mine. Like he's such a good person, and like I, you know, that's the nature of the beast. Like you know, maybe it was my time this time, whatever. But uh, in that moment, to be like, I want to reach out and acknowledge. Yeah, that was. But wasn't this the year, or or shortly after this? I forget where Ernie had the seven putt at Augusta, like had the full. Full yips. I forget when that was. That might have been later, but that was later. That was Ernie like, was struggling with putting to that point, even yes. at big time. And the, it was the kind seven of putt at Augusta was, I think, the first year I was there, which was 2017. So it's we're still a ways gotcha. from the seven putt, but he putting was not like Ernie kind of caught lightning in a bottle for putting for one day on this thing. Gotcha. You know, so. it was 2016 at the seven putt. So I was not okay. even remotely, not even remotely close. Okay. Uh, this is in the midst of um, so Darren Clark won it last year. Ernie Els uh, wins it this year, and Phil Mickelson obviously wins it the next year. It's three straight uh, majors at the Open Championship with guys in their forties, like people hmm. forties. So it shows you the Lynx Golf is a little bit of a different beast. Fortieth ranked player, like the 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 OWGR of the four major winners in the in the time period we're covering. Stuart Sink was thirty third. Louis Ustase in fifty fourth. Darren Clark won eleventh. Ernie Els fortieth. Like no top 30 players won the British Open for a four year period. Wow. Hmm. Uh, so now we come to the final sort of era. I think, as we've sort of said, like the the true transition into the Rory era, he's going to win two more majors after this. But um, this was sort of even more so, I feel like, than congressional, like backing up that you could win the PGA by eight strokes was a huge, uh, yeah. huge thing. And at, at what everyone thought was like one of the toughest courses. 
on earth. And um, could you tell me, though, who the first round leader of the 2012 PGA Championship was? Um, is it Blake Adams? It is not Blake Adams. It is Carl Pedersen. Mm. Swedish Pancake is our friends at the Shotgun Start. If I can't <laughs> yes. uh, did not remember that. as, uh, But uh, nope. yeah, Carl Pedersen uh, came out and, uh, and shot, I want to say, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, I want to say it's like six under to start to, the round. Um, that, I'll give that, you- that typifies the era, though, still. So even though we get the Rory win, like Carl Pedersen, round one leader, that speaks to this era. I think that's not. I don't mean that in a disparaging way about Carl Pedersen. It just speaks to the era. Uh, if I told you that a, a golfer named Gonzalo was uh, shot off the lead in the first round, could you be able to finish uh, what his name is? I would have said for, uh, Fernando. Uh, gosh, no, I couldn't because I can't even piece that name together right now. <laughs> Gonzalo Fernandez Costano. You're, you're mostly. I could tell it was on the tip. Oh, okay, of your I had the order of the names going uh, wrong on that one, but. It's three. We're three hours into this, man. I, 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 my brain's numb. <laughs> uh, who was the second round leader at the PGA Championship? Sorry, that year. Uh, the second round leader was, of course, uh, David Lynn. Tiger Woods. What? The second round leader. Yeah. Another sort of forgotten uh, thing about this era is that uh, Tiger was in a lot of um, of these majors and he just couldn't really figure out how to close. And this would be sort of a theme for a while, like that, you know, Tiger was not, uh, could not sort of just seal the deal. Like he, you know, he faded, I think he shot 74 on, uh, yep. Uh, on Saturday. So he, it's a wild sort of, uh, truth that he, he started out 69, 71 was four under he, VJ and Carl Patterson were all tied for the lead after two rounds. Hmm. And everyone thought that like, it was going to be sort of a duel. He and Rory, it was like the sort of the true kind of like generational duel that Nike execs always kind of dreamed of. And it wasn't even like, well, know. Rory's not Nike just yet, but they're still, they're, right. okay. they're, he's ready. They're ready to start dreaming about this. Uh, yes, I believe Rory finished like 10 strokes ahead of 12, 11 strokes ahead of Tiger throughout mm. the rest of the uh, deal. Um, Blake Adams did make another appearance here. I think we talked about that the, another person I had not heard of uh, was in, he finished two majors uh, and this was his sort of his T7 that he ended up finishing. Uh, conditions in the second round were so windy and blustery that scores were insane. Uh, the is the the average can you guess with the average uh, round the average score in the second round 76.1 not close 78.1 jesus yeah uh paul casey shot 85 what? Ryan, Palmer, Ryan palmer shot 86 two club pros shot 90 and 93 it was a bloodbath out there oh my God. what did rory shoot uh 74 i believe wow yeah so he he had a rough go of it, but he 75. He but he hung around. He made like a crazy up and down that was sort of like helped him sort of steady himself. And then he came out the next day and shot 67. So mm-hmm. it was like, but it was the fact that like he had a he he finished 13 under and had a 75 in the mid, in middle of that is pretty nuts, right? Because they finished the, the weather was an issue, right? Then they play a lot more golf on Sunday that yeah. they have to finish round three on Sunday. Yes. Uh, Tiger faded pretty hard in the third round. He, he his seventy four was tied for the worst round of anybody in the top ten. So another sort of uh, example of did Tiger make every putt that ever mattered? Like eh, not really. No. Um. So 
Sunday was kind of really not all that uh, much of a contest, but um, somebody came out and birdied six of the first seven holes. You know who that was? Six of the first. Ian Poulter. Ian Poulter. Yes. Yeah, a longtime friend of the pod. Ian Poulter. I'm not cheating, by the way. That's that's just a straight guess. Well done. And your your boy David Lynn, uh, is that David Lynn, right? That's a, uh, he yeah. he um, actually finished second in this tournament. I knew. See, I knew that, and then he no longer plays professional golf because that was a story that was revisited with Kiwa. Going back to Kiwa, I remember yeah. seeing that. Uh, Keegan Bradley, Carl Pedersen, Poulter, and Rose finished uh, nine shots uh, back of Rory and tied for third place. Hmm. Yeah, so changing the guard, everyone sort of uh, thinks like uh, you know this is the new era, and uh, and I think uh, a golf podcasts are just about to be born. You know, that's everybody. pretty much right. That yeah, we started the Twitter account in February of 2013. So that was truly all the all the uh, the ma- the post Tiger majors that uh, you know we were not around for and not not starting cover. So yeah, I don't know if I, I don't know if I have an enormous takeaway other than like I felt feel I did feel like it's it's interesting to dive into this era of golf as you know kind of such a we you see so much stuff pop up there was still so much money being given out by these tours at this point and just the talent was it, it had not really the hadn't risen to the top at that point it, comparing you know the OWGR in, in that time period to now it's you know it's a totally totally different ball game and it was just a weird, weird stretch of major winners. Almost all of those major winners were first-time major winners. Like I know Ernie wasn't, uh, but I saw some stat. I, I, I should have should have jotted it down in terms of, um, yeah. Rory, of course, is not. By the time he wins the second one in this era, that's not his first major. But Ernie was a first-time winner, and I think literally all the rest of them. To well, that, yeah. and on hell. Yeah. On, on hell was uh, second time, but almost everyone. I guess Phil. That's a bad stat. Anyways, a lot of first-time major winners. <laughs> in this time period uh it's a decent point you're right there it may not hold up to all of them but like there's nine in a row at one point graham louis tazen keimer schwartzel rory clark keegan bubba and webb winning consecutively was all first time winners so anyways some were more interesting than others i hope people stuck around and enjoyed it for three hours i certainly enjoyed researching it and uh i find it made it makes it makes me feel like my time spent watching those old usga films and stuff was worthwhile because there's some there's some goodies in there go back and watch 09 us open if you can because that was uh just to see where ricky barnes ends up because it's it's honestly comical So, uh, and you know, go back and uh, go back and watch the tiger making the jerk off motion. And, uh, <laughs> Billy Payne. You know, hopefully, hopefully, I'm right, and he is making that to Billy Payne. So, I will go find that as soon as we hang up. So, KVV, I did not know I was asking you for a three hour podcast when we uh, when I asked you to do this. I should have known that. That's on me. But uh, thanks for the time preparing and the time spent uh, revisiting a weird time in golf history. I hope people find this as interesting as we did. Absolutely. Well, I'm mean, sure there's a few sickos that, you know, all three of you that reached the end of this podcast, God bless you. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. Thanks. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything.